My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man with 20 years of service in the U.S. Army. He served in such units as the 75th Ranger Regiment, the 3rd Infantry Division, the 82nd Airborne, and the famed 1st Special Forces Operational Detachment Delta. He's undergone 11 combat deployments in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Horn of Africa. He's hunted the likes of Hussein, Zarqawi, and other notable deck of cards players. This has not been an easy life, as most would understand, but in this one, we go a little deeper to the root causes of the problems suffered by far too many veterans. Numerous concussions, blasts, breaches, TBI, and don't forget a generous dose of PTS. My guest has overcome those demons of his past and is now a shining example to other veterans. He teaches that at any point, you can reinvent yourself to be anything that you need or want to be and that there are brighter days ahead when you look in the right places. He now enjoys the outdoors, volunteer work, and making sure that those that surround him live their absolute best lives. He's a board member of the All Secure Foundation and the president of Van Sant Consulting. He's here in the studio to talk about the highs, lows, chasing the unicorn of adrenaline, and ultimately how to be happy in your life. It's my honor to introduce you to Chris Van Sant. What's going on, my friend? What's up, DJ? Thanks a lot for having me, man. Yeah, uh, I'm so happy you're here. I told you that we have so much to talk about. Um, There's a lot of stuff that we need to cover in your career, but I think we need to go back as we always do to the very beginning. Now, um, from pictures that you've sent me and stuff, you've said that you always wanted to be a soldier in your early life. You didn't come from necessarily a military family. You had people in the military, but not necessarily a military family. So if we could just kind of set up our story with you with the basis of your young life before you came into the military. Gotcha. Yeah. So I grew up in Dover, Delaware, um, small town. Uh, it's an air force town actually. Um, I did have a number of relatives that served. Um, my father joined the reserves, um, during the Vietnam war and, and luckily for him, he never got called up to, to go over. Um, but before him, uh, both my grandfathers served in World War II um, in different capacities. My my pop up, my dad's father um, was in the army, and then my my grandfather was in the Army Air Corps, um, and both served in two different theaters. Um, I think the most the biggest influence on me in in wanting to serve was my my mom's father, my grandfather that served in the Army Air Corps. Um, I, I did want to be a soldier. I always had an interest in it. You know, playing whether you were playing Cowboys and Indians or you were playing uh, a GI Joe in the, in the yard when you were a kid, I was always into that, always enjoyed the outdoors. Um, and I really saw the military as a challenge where I could get some good training, um, that it would provide some structure, which I, I definitely needed as a, uh, as a young teenage boy growing up in a small town. Um, I was prone to get myself in trouble and I was aware of that. So um, the military appealed for me, appealed to me for a lot of reasons. 
Um, but yeah, growing up as a kid, um, my grandfather, you know, I got him at a point in his life when he had settled in enough with who he is and, and things that he had been through that he started telling stories. And, you know, whether it was a good story or a bad story, you know, I always say the same thing. He always told it with such reverence, like his eyes lit up and he remembered it like it was yesterday. And I think as a kid that really had an impact on me, it was like, man, he, he was, he was overseas deployed, losing friends and serving in combat in a time that had to be incredibly uncomfortable for him. Yet when he tells these stories, he still tells them with so much passion. Like he really, really enjoyed and was proud of what he had done. Um, and I think that was probably a big, big motivator for me to, to want to join the service. Well, I want to point out two things that you were talking about there when you talked about your father and your grandfather. First, your father got the idea that uh, he was in college and, and he was either going to get drafted or he was going to go in. And he made the decision to say, I'll just volunteer for the, I think he was for the reserves, correct? The Army Reserves. And, yeah. and that he never got called up. The first question that I have of you before we get into your grandfather, do you think that if he would have went to Vietnam, knowing your motivation, knowing how you were in the military, do you think your military career would have been maybe shaped a little differently? That's a good question. I never thought about it. Um, I think I always looked at it as, you know, my dad was a, he was a young father and in college at the time, um, my brother, they had my brother when they were really young, um, and, and me quite a few years later because of it. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it would have changed things, um, him coming home as a Vietnam veteran and then having kind of a completely different experience than my grandfather's coming home from World War II. Um, although they both would have dealt with some of the same demons, I think the treatment that they got from society was a little different. So it very, very surely could have altered my path. Yeah, no doubt. No one's ever asked that. I've never even thought about that. But I always just appreciated the fact that my father stepped up um, and, and was willing to do so and then, and then was fortunate enough to be able to stay home with his wife and child. Well, and I think it's interesting, like I said, when you talk about the differences, and you just pointed it out, really, that it would have been a different kind of homecoming. But I think that you would agree, let's go full circle to when you're out and everything that's happened in this last 20, 22, 23 years, it's been kind of a different homecoming for those guys, too. Um, we really haven't gone back to those World War II days. Yes, there is way more support for the military, but there's also a lot of vitriol and and... Uh, but there's a lot of spewed hate and stuff about it too, and and treated uh, comparatively to the Vietnam War. Do you, would you agree with that kind of homecoming for him? I would. I mean, it, it was. I, I think my generation was fortunate in that we dealt with an evolution of that. So you know, post nine eleven was for my life. It was probably the most unified America I've ever lived in, um, and people were very pro and supportive of the military and and what we were asked to do. As the war drug on um, and, and GWAT turned into the nightmare that it was that continued forever, uh, yeah, that sentiment certainly changed and a large portion of the country didn't feel like we should be there or, or should have gone in the first place in some cases. And that was, that was difficult. But I think because I got to go through that evolution of feeling like a World War II era veteran that, that was unafraid and, and, and my friends and coworkers were unafraid to step up and do our part. In, in the country's time of need, I think we, we got that good experience and it rounded it out. So as it got bad, we were so confident in what we were doing and the mission we were asked to do. So I think the impacts were a lot less, at least in my opinion, than, than I think they might have been on, on Vietnam veterans coming home from something that they were forced to do in a lot of cases um, and then getting a bad reception after that. It's, it's pretty rough. Yeah. And you, you know, you point out that, that 
during that, there was that evolution that the most unifying, and I agree with you, I think that was the most unified you ever see. What's, what is crazy in my mind about that, though, is like you said, at a certain point, we decided we shouldn't have been there, or maybe we should have never gone there. And I, I, I kind of wonder what the switch was that, that made us change that. And you seem to start getting a lot of people that said, well, we should never be there. But I think, and I've said it on the show before, I think it's very important to point out a lot of guys say we were over there to stop them from coming over here, which was 9-11, to stop that from happening again. <clears throat> and so when I think about it from, you know, the general public's point of view, it kind of seems that it would be hard to change that opinion because you are stopping it. And you know from firsthand experience that you stopped a lot of stuff from coming over here. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I never, ever doubted what we were doing. Um, I think um, like most guys post-retirement and as years go by um, and as you get a little older and, and mortality becomes a lot more real to you and you realize how fortunate you were to live through the things that you did. I think that that scope that you look through, that that optic that you choose gets a little different. It gets a little jaded's not even the right word. It's just it you understand better than anybody how important and how uh essential it is that our elected political officials make the right decisions and do things for the right reasons. Um but again, as I said, I absolutely always believed in what we were doing. There was never a time when I was deployed where I felt like uh, I shouldn't be here. Um, it doesn't mean I always agreed with everything we did uh, or were asked to do, but but I believed in the mission, and I absolutely believe that if we weren't going over there, it would find us here again. Um, and I still believe that to this day. I, I think you, you have to go at it with a measured look and, and make the right choices, but it's going to come to our shores if you don't stay proactive. I heard a great story about you and your father, and I want to bring it up because I think it really ties forward into your military service. You had talked about you were playing in uh, youth baseball, and uh, <laughs> someone had zinged a ball at you. You had kind of picked it up, and, and, and I'll let you explain it a little better. But your dad the next day had said something to you and taught you really about fear and accomplishing a goal. And I I, I couldn't help when I heard that and knowing your story and you and I have talked a couple times thinking that that didn't pay a hundredfold over to you in your career. So can we talk about that and then kind of how you tied it in? And then we're going to, of course, get into your grandfather. Yeah, my father, uh, he was a he was a baseball coach throughout most of my childhood, coach college baseball in, in Delaware. And um, <clears throat> so because of that, he wasn't around a lot for a lot of my baseball. Um, because he was busy and had his own things going on. But one of the one of the times that he was at a, at a game of mine, I don't, I don't remember how old I was. I was I was major league. So I was probably, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old, something like that. But um, it was a, a kind of a line drive one hopper. And as my dad used to say, I olayed it. Um, and I olayed it because I was afraid that it was going to skip and hit me and it was going to hurt um, or that I was going to get hurt. Um, and so the next day, my dad had a conversation with me basically about it's just a baseball and, and you're not going to die. And if you get a little bumper or bruise, you know, it's part of playing the game. Um, and so he took me outside and, and he said, I just want to play catch. And I said, OK. Um, so we started in the yard and we were a good, you know, 50, 75 yards apart or whatever. And we were throwing long balls to each other and kind of just trying to throw strikes in each other's chest. And he said, all right. He said, I want you to throw it at me as hard as you can every single time. I said, all right. 
we were good and warmed up. So I rifled one at him. He caught it. He did the same back to me. Um, again, I was 12 and he was a grown man uh, and still had quite an arm on him <laughs> in, in his in his early 40s there. And uh, so he said, every time you throw the ball, after you throw the ball, I want you to take a step forward. And we continued that process, the two of us, until we were literally like six to 10 feet apart. And I was still throwing the ball as hard as I could at my father, which was fearful in itself. And he was throwing as hard as he could at me. Now, I did have some faith in my dad that my dad, if, as long as I had my glove up in front of my face and my chest, that my dad was going to hit that glove. All I had to do was have the personal courage to stand there and catch that baseball and watch it in my glove. But anyway, we did this for a while and it was a pretty emotional event for me. And I don't know if he realized what he was doing um, or to the extent or impact that it was going to have on me. But what he was teaching me was to overcome fear, was to have faith in your skills and your ability to execute a task and that bumps and bruises happen. But if you do everything in your power to control the situation and to the best of your ability, nine times out of 10, you're going to be just fine. Um, and I carried that with me for the rest of my life. I think I took that into most of my training. Um, I think I had faith not only in my own abilities, but the training that I'd received. And I had a lot of faith in the people around me, just like I did with my father that day. Yeah, I, I couldn't help but think about that and think about the second time that you were going through selection for Delta and you made a split second decision that actually could have ended it for you about not taking as much time on a drawing and moving forward with speed instead of, uh, ac I guess accuracy would be the word. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but I couldn't help but compare those two stories of you knowing, look, this is what set me back in the past. I'm confident in what I know I need to do. And you went forward with it without a second's thought. I mean, you just did it and moved on. Yeah, I think you make a decision and you, and you execute to the best of your ability on that decision. And if you're wrong, you learn from your mistakes, you pick yourself up and you try it again and you don't make the same mistake next time. Um, and that I mean, that thing repeated itself throughout my career. And I've, I've always said I was fortunate um, to have good leaders. Like I, I had quite a few really good leaders in the various units that I served in. And, and a handful of those are, are the difference between me staying in the Army or getting out or, or the difference in me being successful or me not. Um, but the majority of that was instilling confidence in myself and my training and my ability to, to, to get that stuff done. So if we could, let's go back to your grandfather, because I, I've heard you say that your grandfather is kind of the most like you, uh, that he did a couple things. I want to point out once though, that during world war two, not only was he extended once he was extended three times in his contract. So he spent a very much forward time in combat, not of his own choosing. Um, he did but, nearly four years. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and all over the Pacific, uh, Correct. where there was major fighting going on. And he was part of a team from what I understand of setting up airfields and, and anything that had operations into bringing planes in, he had to do with that. Now you say that he was very much like you. Can you kind of tell us about that and explain why you think you guys are so alike? Yeah. My, one, my grandfather, he wasn't, he wasn't, um, he wasn't a little guy, but he wasn't a very assuming man either. Um, but he was a competitor. He was good at everything that he ever did. Um, so many times throughout his life, things happened to him that honestly, he either shouldn't have survived or he shouldn't have got back up from. And I'll give you a couple examples. He was run over by a bus as a child and it crushed his pelvis and he was told he would never walk again. That was like once. And then he was playing soccer at one point. Um, and he took a shot, collided with another guy and ruptured his aorta. Uh, and they thought he was going to die. And somehow back then they did whatever they did and patched him up and put him back together and he was fine. Um, he sawed his own finger off <laughs> in 
in the barn one time cutting some wood and he, and he just wrapped it up in a bandage and walked in the house and told my grandmother, I need to go to the hospital. And, and that was kind of it. Like he was just one of those guys. He was from that generation of, of just tough, hard living and working hard. Um, and then he was a man of mistakes. Um, you know, he, he deployed to World War II and like you said, was, was extended and made some mistakes while he was in the service and did some pretty funny things uh, that got him in some trouble a few times, as anyone would do if they just kept making you stay there. Um, but uh, but I he think kept one was it. Grand Theft Auto. It was Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, they told him to, they told him to secure a truck one time, and we don't care how you do it, just get it done. So he stole one from the Navy uh, to do the the detail that he was tasked to do, and he ended up getting court-martialed for it, which didn't matter because he was still deployed and stayed over there anyway. But yeah, he was in he was in multiple plane crashes. He was actually formally grounded by the Army Air Corps, and they said that he only had to take a boat or a truck or a train everywhere he went. He didn't have to fly anymore because he was in back to back plane crashes. Uh, but yeah. You know, and then he came home from World War II, and and then that was a time when we didn't understand. We didn't understand what had happened to those guys, and he struggled with with alcohol um, and had some problems, um, which you know, years later I understand now is you know he was chasing away some demons. He he came home with a probably a healthy amount of post traumatic stress, and and Lord only knows what else, um, and had been apart from his family and loved ones for a really long time, and lost a lot of his mates and. You know, so he struggled with that for a number of years. You know, my mom's early childhood years, you know, she used to say he wasn't a nice person. Um, and, and that when he got older, that was not the man that she grew up with. And but, I, you know, I always told her, well, you know, he went through some stuff, mom, and I'm thankful for the man that I got. Like he impacted my life at a time when he was an old man. You know, he was sitting in his recliner in his house and sitting on his front porch watching the cars go by. Um, but his words and his actions and his stories certainly affected me and changed my life. Well, you've never been afraid, speaking of alcohol, you've never been afraid to speak up and say that you have battled that demon numerous times in your life. Yep, I've also sure heard you say, and it, it was really strange to me to hear you say it, because looking in from the outside, you can't put the two together. You have talked about your parents being divorced, but in that divorce, it turned out great. You got four great parents. You learned a lot from all of them. But you also said you started very young drinking, very young partying, and that was part of the reason that you knew you couldn't play baseball in college because you would piss it away. And you've yep. said it on numerous occasions that you would piss it away. So I guess I'm trying to understand, and I say all that to say this, I'm trying to understand with it being a good life and everything, what started you down that path? It's a good question. Um I was a bit of a hellraiser as a kid. Uh, I think I've always been a bit of a adrenaline junkie. Um, I never shied away from confrontation. Um, I think I kind of always liked that. My mom used to joke when I was a kid and say, you know, I hope you grow up and be a lawyer because you're the best debater I've ever met. And, and that was when I was a child. And, and I think it was just because I, it was competition. I liked that conflict and I liked the up and down energy that it gave me. And then so when I was, a, you know, as a teenager, you know, 15, 16 years old, um, it, it's Delaware. There's there's not a lot to do. Uh, <laughs> this is and, not an indictment on the state of Delaware. No, it's not at all. No, it's a great state <laughs> to grow up in. I mean, if you did half the things that we did when I was a kid, you know, you'd go to jail or, or juvie these days. But back then they just drove you home to your parents' house and said, get your boy in line. Um, and, and everybody kind of knows everybody. So the community looks out for one another. So, yeah. So I think I just started 
um, as a way to have some fun or, or do something that was a little risky to, to kind of chase that excitement. Um, I think that's definitely a part of my personality and has been for a lot of years. I mean, I'm older and mellow now, um, but I've done a whole lot of things and I feel good about that. And I came out on the other side of it. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's mellowed considerably over the years, but I still do things now in my life. I still climb mountains and spend time in the backcountry and take some risks. Um, they're measured, but, uh, but I certainly push the envelope as much as I can within my abilities today. Do you remember your first drink? Uh, yeah. Or the first time you drank? Yeah. Uh, the first time I drank was with a friend in my neighborhood. Um, wow. I had to be, I was probably 14 years old. Um, and we stole his dad's gin, uh, and replaced oh it with water. God, what an awful choice. It was, it was terrible. I mean, it was, it was, I thought we were drinking a cleaning product. Um, and yeah, that went as you could expect. Uh, and then I was, I had a babysitter one time that, uh, she had some friends over and I, and I was probably three or four years younger than them. And, uh, you know where this story is going. It was summertime and they got a little intoxicated and I didn't. And uh, the, their clothes came off, and for a young boy, it was a it was a very entertaining time. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, about fourteen years old um, with a buddy, and then I probably didn't have anything else for about six months. And then uh, an older friend of mine that lived within walking distance had a party one night, and that was probably the first time I really drank. Um, and then yeah, I you know I think it's just one of those things. I think. You know, alcoholism runs in families. It's it's uh, I don't call it hereditary, but it's fairly common for multiple generations to suffer the same ailments. And I think I was susceptible to that. Uh, it took me a lot of years and I still to this day, I have to be very careful. Um, I and it's not that I want to drink all the time. I can go months without a drink, um, but it's that if I'm in a real comfortable situation and I'm having a good time and I have a few too many, that off switch kind of disappears on me and I can go a little too far. Um, so I have to be careful with it. That being said, you know, I enjoy having a drink. I'm having a, a glass of bourbon right now, um, mainly because I'm an introvert and doing this is very extroverted and it, I need just a little bit to, to feel comfortable enough to keep going. So um, forgive me. I'm probably not the best role model when it comes to that. And I have had my struggles, but it's very much under control. Well, no, I, but I think that's a good point to bring up is that when you say that you've had trouble or that, that you know that there's that place that you can go to whenever you do drink, but you still you still do it, but you do it with, I guess you would say, reverence now. You watch what you're doing with it. Um, I, I'm, also, I'm also very choosy of my situations. Like I will, if, I'm ha if I know I'm going to have a few drinks, it's with, it's with friends or family that I have known and trusted for a long time. And, and, and that's not saying that it's a regular occurrence that something bad happens. It's just me knowing that just in case I need to make sure that I've got some teammates around that are going to look after me. Um, and, and you never know, like, I, you know, I've struggled with depression and other things for years. Sometimes you can just be having a bad day and, and alcohol will be your friend every time if you let it. Um, so you have to pay attention to that. So let me ask you with that, do you, are you very, are you very choosy about who you put around you at all times? Yeah. Yeah. My circle is pretty small. Um, you know, I've got a handful of folks that I've held on to for my entire life. I've got some childhood friends that, uh, and, and most people know this, but that, you know, they're the kind of people that you don't have to talk for several years and, and you make one phone call and it's like you were never apart. Um, I've got a handful of those. 
I've got a handful of guys that I've kind of amassed over over my career, um, and then some folks in my personal and professional life now. But but my circle is really small. Um, you know, my wife's my best friend for sure, uh, and and I I. I do public things uh, and, you know, like I have to go to shows and events and be around a lot of people and be on. Um, but where my comfort space is really alone, like home with with just my wife um, or out in the backcountry where it's just us and, and nature. Um, I, I definitely prefer that. And that's where my headspace is best. So let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Is that because you think that people don't understand where you're coming from? Because I'm speaking from a law enforcement perspective on this. I was in the military, but I can speak more. I've spent longer in law enforcement where you have that thought in the back of your head where people don't understand and they don't understand your sense of humor. They don't understand why you look at things a certain way. They, there's a lot of different reasons that you're very choosy that people on the outside don't understand. Is it that reason why you're choosy about who you put in or is there another reason for it in total? Uh, for me, honestly, um, DJ, I, I, I was fortunate to meet and, and make some really good friends um, in my in my professional career, my military career specifically. Um, and I lost a lot of those. Um, I lost my best friend, Mike McNulty, uh, or my best friend in the military, probably up to that point. Um, in 2005, um, lost a lot of close acquaintances, but then just post-service, I lost another guy that was near and dear to me, Brandon Jackson, in a base jumping accident. And I, after Brandon, I mean, I was a little shut off. I was shut off internally with the organization, and I wouldn't let teammates get close after that 05 year. And I think it was just because I was afraid to lose guys after letting them in. And then when I lost Brandon, it, it got even worse because that was post-service. Like, that guy, you know, he was you know, chasing the adrenaline rush that the void of getting out of the service and losing your identity of being an operator left and, um, and he died doing it. And, you know, we were tight and a lot of years and been through a lot of stuff together. And I, um, I think a, a lot of that is what contributed to me kind of shutting down a little bit and keeping my circle small and not letting a lot of folks in because it's, it's fear. It's I'm, I'm afraid to let them in and lose them again because it's really hard to go through. Are you angry at him for chasing that? I was for a while. Um, I think my own journey, my own healing and understanding of my own mental health issues have helped me to understand how and why he was doing the things that he was doing um, and, and sympathize with that. Um, at the end of the day, it was an accident. Uh, it it could have happened to anybody. Um, I, I was just early on, I was upset with him for putting himself in that position. I mean, he was... I was working for Tier Tactical at the time, and and I had almost finally convinced him uh, to come to work for us. And he was supposed to fly out and meet with us, and me and the CEO, and and discuss an employment opportunity. And something came up, um, so it got delayed a couple weeks. And in that two week delay, he flew down to Georgia and was jumping with some buddies, and and uh, unfortunately, you know, passed away in an accident. I want to go back, if we can, to your military career, because I think that that puts us kind of on this whole journey. Now, with you joining the military, one, I want to agree with you on a couple of things I've heard. Navy SEALs was a fantastic movie. 
Yes, it was. <laughs> I don't know if any of it was realistic. You could probably tell us better than anyone. Honestly, man, I think the personalities were spot on. Really? But, uh, yeah, I really do. I mean, okay. I, I've did known... you ever see anyone bring a girl into the shoot house so that they could scare them into telling them information? Uh... That, that, I've never seen that happen, <laughs> um, but I wouldn't doubt if it had. But but yeah, I mean, I, I thought they nailed the uh, the seal persona personally. Okay. Um, but just based on a lot of guys that I've met over the years, uh, each of the characters kind of gave a little different flair on each one. And I thought it was pretty accurate. Uh, you also mentioned the Delta Force was a big factor in your life. Uh, Chuck Norris, of course. Um, you're, you're joining the military, though, was kind of a jigsaw puzzle. And you kind of just threw it on the ground. I think you talked to everybody before I you did. actually joined the military. Here's what's funny, though. You talk about your parents saying that uh, they told you, just look at all your options. And you took yeah. that literally. You looked at every option you possibly could. So if you could, please walk the audience through everything that you went through. Because I think this is because like when I joined, I had a brother in the army. I, I just joined the army. Like I didn't yeah. look at the Navy. I didn't look at the air. I didn't do anything like that. I've heard a lot of guys that go around and ask. But you took it to a whole new level. Yeah, yeah. So I had a guy in class with me. Honestly, I think it was summer school. I can't remember. It was either an English class of like my sophomore or junior year, or it might have been summer school because I failed. I had an English teacher that hated me, and I think I failed this class like three times. I think I graduated like 11th grade English at one point, which is funny now, but it wasn't at the time. But it took me like three tries. Anyway, the guy in the class, his brother was an Air Force combat controller. Um, and he got to talk to me about it one day and he, you know, it sounded really cool. And I was like, well, do you have any information on it? And what he brought me was this like old school, like typewriter typed packet of paper that was the CCT and, and pararescue jumper pipeline and like all the training that they go through in the different phases and how many weeks of each. And I was like, man, like you can go do this and they're going to, they're going to pay me and teach me to scuba dive and jump out of planes and shoot sniper rifles and you know as a kid I, like my eyes were this big and i was like that's amazing so um but yeah and then i had a conversation with my parents about going in the service and i think i was pretty candid at the time i should ask my mom that but i think i think i did actually say to my mom like i think i need the structure of of going in the army and this is you know my junior year of high school so i'm still a year out from graduation um and i, I want to ask something i don't want to interrupt you but i gotta ask could you have gotten a scholarship in baseball uh, I don't know. Um, were you my, right there on the line though? I think I was, okay. I think I need, I think, I think I would have been one of those guys that would have developed more my first couple years of college. I would have put on some more size, um, and gotten a little faster and, and yeah, I mean, I definitely had the background. I mean, I grew up, I grew up hitting in batting cages with college kids when right. I was, a, a, you know what I mean? So and, and I love the game. Like it was a part of my life. Um, I still love the game. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just I wanted to see I, like how close you were to actually doing it in college or like if it was a pipe dream, but it doesn't sound like it was really a pipe dream. Like it was a, a very good possibility of happening. Yeah. I mean, my old man being a college baseball coach, uh, I'm willing to bet he could have found somewhere to, to pay me to play baseball. Um, and I probably, I probably would have gone to a small school. I probably would have done a couple years and I probably would have transferred to a bigger school. Like I said, um, if I had to go back and guess how that would have panned out, 
Um, but like, like I also said, I knew I would have partied like, you know, chasing girls and drinking and, and I would have, I'd have messed it up. Um, so yeah, anyway, so, so my parents tell me, you know, make sure you explore your options. My mom was sort of terrified of me going in the military, but that was the advice that they gave me. Um, my dad wasn't supportive. He wasn't unsupportive. I think if, if anything, he was a little disappointed because I think he wanted me to go play college baseball. Um, and you know, get an education also, but you know, baseball was in his blood too. And I think he was a little disappointed at the time. He's never said that to me. I've just always felt like that. So maybe I'll have that conversation at some point, but, uh, but yeah, so I went to the recruiting station, which was a joint recruiting station. They had all the offices there. And the very first guy I went to was the air force guy. And I went in and talked to him and, and not to offend anybody, but you know, he was like your typical air force dude. Like he was kind of dorky, had a bad mustache within regulation. Um, and when I asked him about combat controllers and pararescue jumpers, like even as a, as a 17 year old kid, I immediately got the impression that he had no clue, like what I was talking about. Like he had to like, look some stuff up. So he threw some things at me and said, you know, we're offering this and, and college money and that. And, and he's like, and yeah. And he goes, you know, you have to pick another operational specialty first. You got to pick another job in the air force, because if you wash out of training in the pipeline, you got to go do that. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I appreciate your time and, and I'll come back. Um, and then I, and I'm not sure in what order uh, the Marines were definitely last, but I think I went to the army guy next. Um, I went in and talked to the army guy and the guy that covered my school, he was a logistician, nothing against him, but you know, I was asking about being an, an army ranger or a green beret. Um, and at the time they didn't have like the SF baby program like they do now. Um, so you couldn't go straight into the green berets but you could get an army ranger contract and, and same, same story. He didn't know enough about it. Um, but they did offer college money and some other incentives. And so I, I walked out of there Went in the Navy office asked about being a seal, the guy kind of chuckled. Um, and same kind of thing with the air force guy. He didn't know a lot about it. And then same discussion about, you know, you got to pick another specialty. And I think I even asked that guy, I was like, so if I get hurt or fail out of buds, does that mean I'm going to be on a boat chipping paint somewhere? Like, I think even then I said that because of stuff you'd seen in movies. Um, and he was like, well, yeah, you know, that that's, you have to pick something. So still disappointed. I go to see the Marine recruiter uh, and I walked in and the, you know, the Marine recruiter looks like a Marine. He's a, he's a barrel chested freedom fighter. His uniform is perfect. His haircut looks like he got it done that morning. Um, and, you know, he sits me down, he's talking to me and, uh, you know, the conversation goes on and, you know, he basically tells me, you know, what, how cool it is to be a rifleman in the infantry. And, and I'm like, yeah, well, that's what would interest me. I was like, I've heard some things about recon and force recon. And he was like, well, everybody starts out as a grunt and kind of gives me that spiel. And he gets done and because of his presence and his character, I was like, man, I, you know, I at least want to be a part of a service where people look like that. Um, and I hadn't seen the best examples thus far from the other services. And, but because I was doing due diligence, I asked him, I said, Hey, the Navy recruiter offered this, the army recruiter offered that the air force recruiter offered that. I said, what's the, uh, what's the U S Marine Corps offering me to, to join the Marines. And he like leaned forward and he went the privilege of being a United States Marine. And I laughed <laughs> and it wasn't because I didn't respect what he said. I just thought it was funny. Like, we don't have to give you anything. You're lucky for us to let you in. And I was, you know, I was kind of a little shit. So I laughed and he threw me out of his office, like, like legitimately got up and said, get the out of my office. Really? Um, he did. Yeah. And so, 
and, and I would have too. I was a little asshole. <laughs> like I laughed at his at his pride. Um, and I, you know, now I know I look at it a lot differently now. But at the time, I was just a punk kid. Um, so I walked out of his office and I'm I'm leaving and I'm all dejected and I know it shows on my on my demeanor. My head's kind of down and I get just the front door, just out the front door, and this guy runs up to me and, and it's like, hey man, hey, hey, hey. And I'm like, yeah, and I turn around and it's a dude from the army recruiting office and a little short, stocky guy, but you know, he was fit, um, looked like a soldier, and his name was Corey Deal, um, Staff Sergeant Deal. And he had a 82nd combat patch on. I mean, I know that now. At the time, I just knew he had a patch on, but had some stuff on his chest. You know, he just looked different than the rest of the guys in the office. And he said, Hey, I heard you talking to Sergeant so-and-so. He's like, you interested in being an army ranger or jumping out of planes? And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, let me tell you, he goes, you know, I come from the 82nd airborne division that, you know, the greatest paratroopers in the world. He's like, I know a little bit about it. And he said, I think I can help you out. He said, you know, will you let me go ask the station chief if I could talk to you? Cause they could only talk to the schools that they were responsible for. Um, so he said, can you give me five minutes? I said, yeah. He went and asked the guy. The guy said, yep. So then he brings me in. He actually sat me down and showed me an Army Ranger recruiting video. Oh, shit. Um, and then looked look through, yeah, look through the system. <laughs> and he's like, I, you know, the long and short of it was I don't have a Ranger contract, but I have an airborne contract. So you'll go to infantry basic training um, as an 11 Bravo get trained as an infantryman, you'll go straight to airborne school. And then while you're in airborne school, the ranger instructors will come down and you can volunteer right there to go to rip. And the guy was, you know, he was so candid and he was so honest and he felt so genuine that I believed everything that he said. Um, and so that kind of sealed the deal for me. And I was like, man, I can, I can go be a paratrooper. If I try out for the Rangers and I don't make it at a minimum, I'm going to end up in the 82nd Airborne Division or the 173rd or whatever, and I'm going to get to to be a paratrooper. Um, and that's pretty cool. Um, so that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, the Marine threw me out of the office. The other two guys were fat, and the and the Army finally uh, <laughs> sent me a good guy. <laughs> so did you tell the Navy guy that you had seen Navy SEALs numerous times? And I don't were, think so. You were well so. aware of what was ahead. I was like expecting like Michael Bain and, and he looked like, uh, he looked like Danny DeVito. Nice. <laughs> nice. So you go in, you go to basic. Is it everything? I, I ask a lot of guys this, uh, is it everything when you get there? Like when you get to basic, are you thinking like, yeah, I made the right decision. This is what I'm supposed to do. Or was it a blur? No, I mean, no, I mean it, it, I, I was never a homesick person or whatever, but I'll tell you what, I think anybody that goes to basic training fresh out of high school, um, I think there's a, there's an element of what the hell did I get myself into? Um, I was an, I was an in shape kid. I was an ocean lifeguard that summer at the beach, like before I went in the service. So like I was fit, uh, which I figured out really early, gave me a very easy leg up. And it also made drill sergeants kind of like you because they would scuff everybody up and you were the one kind of smiling and, and enjoying that part of it. And that was me. Um, so as it went on, it got better, but yeah, my mom still has some of the letters that I wrote home during basic training and, and they're hilarious. Like, like just how I think of all the things that I did now and just how timid I sound in my letters to my mother, um, back then are, are pretty entertaining and, and I kind of get a kick out of it. But do you remember anything in particular? Uh, no, I think I tried to put a positive spin on it, but I could see it and hear it in my writing. Um, yeah, a, a couple times ago when I was home visiting or something, somehow we found him and I, and I looked at a couple and it was pretty funny. Did you ever uh, get but philosophical? Got, 
A lot of people uh, get philosophical in their letters too. Yeah, I don't think I did. Uh, we had some guys go AWOL and stuff, and that was such a funky experience that I was like, man, I will never be that guy. And I think that was like the nail in the coffin. Like, you know what? This is this at the end of the day, anything that they do to you is going to end. So yeah. all you got to do is endure it. Um, and then and then I got stronger and better. And then silly stuff happened to me in base training. I weighed like 135 pounds. Like I was six foot tall, 135 pounds. I was a string bean. And then, you know, you got some fat kids. So the fat kids, they would make uh, eat really fast and get them out of the chow hall so they could barely get all their food in their mouth. They would make me be the first person into the chow hall and they would make me be the last person out and they would make me eat like double portions of stuff. So I actually gained 20 pounds in basic training. <laughs> so you this is where it gets a little bit uh, off for you. You thought 11 Bravo, you're actually yeah. becoming 11 Charlie. You become a Mortarman. Uh, were you disappointed? Uh, to say the least. Okay. Uh, but you're, you're, I mean, I was, maybe some people aren't, but I was terrified. Like when we stopped the initial stuff and started AI advanced individual training or whatever they call it now, where we started breaking into our specialties and the infantry guy or the 11 bravos went and did one thing back then we had 11 hotels the tow missile guys they went and did their thing we didn't i don't think we had any 11 mics like the bradley guys mechanized dudes in our class but and then 11 charlies and so the one the drill sergeants from my platoon were my favorite of all the drill sergeants in the company um they were just they were just cool man like they they were the best at singing cadence they were motivating and they were all in really good shape and i and i just got a kick out of that um so when we transitioned to ait it was a surprise and i thought well maybe we're just doing maybe everybody does this and we're gonna like rotate through like i don't even know that i caught that they said you guys are 11 charlies and the other guys are this this and this i don't think i put that together for quite some time um but i ended up just keeping my mouth shut and going through all the training and finishing um and graduating and then uh, the day after we graduated, when they were calling out orders for where guys were going and then calling out orders for guys that were getting on the bus to go to airborne school because we were already on Fort Benning, uh, they didn't call my name. And I, for once, I spoke up and said something about it. And the company first started ended up pulling me into his office and he was a former army recruiter. Thank God for me. Um, and he did some digging and made some phone calls. And what had happened was they enlisted me as a 11 x-ray and they were supposed to when the 11 bravo with airborne slot contracts popped up they had written it all out and they were just supposed to do a paperwork swap well something happened and it never got done but whoever he called which i'm assuming was my recruiter sergeant deal back in dover delaware um corey told him the deal and he made it right so i, I was stuck being an 11 charlie but he got me airborne orders cut that day. And I got on the bus with the rest of the guys and went to airborne school. That's pretty amazing that he did it in one day. It, it, I mean, when I say a day, I mean, he did it in 30 minutes. Wow. Like, I, I, again, I don't know what happened, but I got on the bus with everybody else and went to airborne school and, and the rest is kind of history. So let's, uh, what if this, say you don't get on that bus. You're an 11, to Charlie. Oh, You're God. an 11, Charlie. You're not yeah. airborne. Yep. You're you're gonna be a leg somewhere. Maybe uh, you'll go to mech. 
But I you're gonna going to be a to, leg. I was going to First Infantry Division in Fort Riley, Kansas. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Big red one. Mechanized. So what happens? I'd have just got out. what if in it? I'd have done. I'd have done my four year term and I'd have got out. Um, if I'd have started, and again, I did time in third ID later for other reasons um, in a mechanized infantry unit as an 11 Charlie. But if I would have started there, there's no way, um, you know, landlocked at Fort Riley, Kansas, in the middle of nowhere, a long way from home in a place that I don't want to be and stuck doing motor pool Mondays uh, right out of the gate. I don't know that I would have made it. I think knowing what that mechanized lifestyle was like in the pre 9-11 days um, and what your weeks were like. Um, I, I honestly think I would have done my four and walked away. That's, that's pretty crazy to hear though. I mean, when you think about everything that you did later on, that seems really crazy that, that there was really just one step from you going in either direction. And that happened a number of times throughout my career. Yeah. Like, especially in that first, like four year, that four, four year enlistment, there were like several key events that could have been the difference between me staying or going and never doing anything that I did. Yep. Well, let's talk about that. So you go to airborne school, you love it. You, you are doing what you want to do. Uh, they come down, talk to you about rip, correct? Yep. You volunteer. They send you to the Ranger Reg, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I go through rip, I actually went through rip twice. Um, I failed everything in my military career the first time, uh, but somehow got through it the second time. Yeah. They did a, a, we were two weeks in and, and we had a like three day weekend or something. And so they allowed us out on like Liberty pass. Um, and you had to sign out, you know, it's pre cell phone days. So you had to sign out and put the number of where you were going. So we all like just used a hotel and I drove to Clemson, South Carolina to visit some buddies at Clemson university. Uh, and a, a, somebody's like had a family member die. There was a red cross message and they recalled us all. And there were about 11 or 12 of us that didn't make it back. So we showed up on Sunday night or whatever. I think we had a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we showed up on Sunday night and, um, yeah, we were in big trouble, um, and thought we were going to get the boot and I would have been right back to, you know, somewhere in the army, wherever they sent me, but they didn't, they told us, you know, we were two weeks in, they were going to recycle us all and we're stupid. And because we're stupid, we have to do it again. Um, so I did the second time was successful and was assigned to third Ranger battalion weapons platoon and Charlie company back then. You had mortars in your anti-tank section and your snipers were all in, in weapons platoon in each of the companies. Um, and that was, uh, that was an adventure. So what are you humping then? Uh, 60 millimeter mortars. Um, so base plate, bipod and gun. You had two guns per mortar section. So one mortar section per company and a whole lot of 60 millimeter mortar rounds. Do you like it? I did. Um, yeah, I mean, it was cool. Like we, we did good training. We were, we were jumping, we were rucking, uh, we were shooting. Um, I mean, it was training focused. I mean, every day you were doing something, you didn't spend a lot of time wasted. Uh, they were tough on you, but I liked it. Um, the guys were, you know, all your, your, your team leaders and squad leaders were beasts. You know, the platoon sergeants were, you know, all combat vets at the time. They, they, you know, a lot of those guys did, did Grenada. They did Panama. So you had, you know, in the army you had mustard stains. You had guys with combat jump stars, um, which, you know, up until that point, you didn't even really know what that was. And then when you found out, you were like, holy crap, that's like the guys in World War II. They, they, they jumped into war. Like, that's just insane. Um, so yeah, it was a very motivating environment. Um, but it was also like a frat house. I mean, it was a bunch of young kids, um, that were in shape, uh, that were treated rough, but also trained very well. 
Um, and the harder you worked and the more disciplined you were, the easier things got for you. So it was a very, very motivating environment. And then at night, it, you know, we all turned back into the kids that we were. So it was drinking and partying and fighting each other. And um, yeah, it was like a it was like a frat house on steroids, except you had to get up at 5 a.m. and run five miles every morning as fast as you could and throw up. Were you worried? Because we talked about this, that you were worried when you went to college that this was going to happen. So you're you're in essence living that college life. You Now, there's granted a ton more structure, but uh, you're kind of living that same life you were worried about for college. I was. I was. Um, if there was anything good about it is that we did almost everything in mass. Uh, so, you know, it'd be three, four, six, twelve guys um, out on the town together. So we had a pretty good network of policing each other up, but, but yeah, sure as shit. Um, about a year into being in third range battalion, I was a buddy of mine, grew up in Texas, got a, got a, basically a dear John from his girlfriend back home saying, you know, you're gone too much and I'm moving on. He was upset. And, and we went out to a, to a local place there, um, outside of, or well in Northern Columbus, place called B Merrill's and they had the like round the weird world beers and all that stuff. And, uh, and Ben had quite a few. Um, and I had literally like two beers and dinner. Uh, and I drove him home cause he was chasing away his, his woes. And, uh, we got in a car accident, little tiny fender bender. I was, he had this great big old truck, you know, Texas guy and, uh, <laughs> no offense. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but yeah, it just rained and, and a, a lady stopped on a yellow um, and I hit the brakes and, and we just slid and barely kissed her. But a cop was passing and saw the accident. And, um, and you know, my buddy Ben, when the cop pulled us out of the vehicle to talk to us, you know, Ben got out and was like throwing up in the bushes next to the truck. Um, like it didn't look good. And so the cop asked me a question and, you know, and he basically said, don't lie to me. Like your buddy's over there throwing up in the bushes. I know you boys have been drinking. Um, and I said, yeah, I, I have, but I, you know, I'm not intoxicated. I said, I had literally had two beers over the last like two and a half hours and whatever, but I was underage. So, um, any amount of alcohol in your system is a, is a DUI, but yeah, the crazy part of the story is he actually, he advised me and you'll laugh at this as a law enforcement officer. He advised me to refuse the breathalyzer. And he said, I, I mean, I, th I genuinely think he was trying to take care of me, DJ, like as a service member and a young kid. And he could tell I wasn't like inebriated in any form or fashion. Um, but yeah, so he drove me around for a while before he took me to the station um, where they did a blood test. And I don't remember what my blood alcohol level was. It was it was minuscule because that was one of the things that my attorney argued. But um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I was I was not 21 years old and I had alcohol in my system and I was involved in a traffic accident. So um, nobody got hurt. But uh, yeah, I ended up spending the weekend in jail. Um, Ended up getting bailed out, uh, went back to the company, snuck in the back door to, to try to escape my CO and first sergeant because I, you know, I wanted to see if anybody knew what was going to happen to me before I had to face the music. Um, and, you know, the guys had collected a bunch of money and they were going to come bail me out because they were pissed that the company had left me there all weekend. And um, and yeah, they told me that my my section sergeant. Um, so the E6 in charge of me had gotten a DUI the exact same night. Mm. Uh, so, you know, on the one hand, it was good because I could commiserate with my boss. 
Uh, on the other hand, you know, we knew we were both leaving the regiment because at the time the policy was if you had alcohol related incident, you, you were going needs of the army, you were going someplace else. Um, so yeah, so I ended up getting what they call RFS out of regiment. Um, I actually spent another like six months there after the DUI. We even did a deployment to Germany and a 40 mile infill and a bunch of stuff that was really cool. Um, you know, got German jump wings, like good things happened after that. But, but eventually, you know, the time came and, uh, they cut me orders for third infantry division. And, and I, because I was an 11 Charlie, I went to the mechanized unit there on Kelly Hill at Fort Benning. So let me ask you though, you have this, everything good goes, you continue doing the right thing. Uh, you continue to excel by all accounts. And at a certain point they go, you know what? You have excelled. You've done everything we've asked of you, but we're still going to smack your dick in the dirt. Yeah. Are you, are you angry then? Uh, I think I was so disappointed in myself um, because it was stupid. Like it didn't have to happen. Uh, and like you said earlier, like I went in the service because I knew I needed a little structure and I, you know, and then I ended up doing something and, and getting in trouble. I mean, those phone calls when I got that DUI calling my mom and calling my old man and, I was so proud of, you know, where I was and what I was doing and so happy about it. Um, that was a really tough, you know, obstacle. Uh, and then leaving the regiment and going to third infantry division, you know, I'd spent a little over a year in the regiment, like in the best place you can be as a paratrooper. And in my mind, you know, you heard all these things and you listen to guys talk and, you know, mechanized was like the armpit of the infantry. Um, at least that's, that was, you know, what I thought at the time. So I was, I was a, a miserable pup. Um, and just hoping that they didn't treat me bad because I'd done something stupid and gotten a letter of reprimand and whatever else came with it. But then you went over there and they didn't treat you. They kind of looked up to you as you came over there. You know, they were awesome. I had some great leaders there. I had some hilarious leaders there. Uh, but yeah, they took me in with open arms, basically said, you know, this is a fresh start. They respected the fact that I, you know, for a guy that had only been in the army a little over a year, I had done a whole lot of stuff. So I was a lot smarter and a lot better trained than a lot of the, the young guys that they had. So, and I was in shape um, and I loved to PT. So it was an environment that was easy to excel in. And they certainly gave me the opportunities to do so. So with all that, um, you go over there. Um, it's a different environment though. So, so here's my question and I'm going to go back to it during our conversation a lot. You, you go to the regiment and it's so regimented what you're doing and everything is above board and all that kind of stuff. I was regular army. You go and it's not as regimented. It's regimented, but it's definitely, it can go wheels off at any moment. So you go I over thought, there. I think my first, I think my first month there, I saw an E4 guy's name was James Buckwheat, huge yoked up bodybuilding E4. That was a former Marine left the Marines like a lot of guys and ended up in, in another service, ended up in the army. I watched him get yelled at by a staff sergeant and the staff sergeant tell him to do push-ups, and Buckwheat looked the dude dead in his eye, bowed up and said, fuck you and walked away. And I thought in regiment, if that happened, 
they would they would have went to fisticuffs right there and that squad leader would have beat that dude down size difference or not um there's no way you were getting away with that level of insubordination and i saw it happen uh and that kind of stuff was surprising um but at the same time you know the hiding in their rooms and like i hated all of that stuff so much that like there came a point where you know that the leadership was bitching about the way some of the soldiers were like the lack of discipline, the lack of effort and motivation. And I actually spoke up. Right. And I said, Hey, you know, I could fix that. Like if you let me. And I, I, again, I had a hilarious platoon sergeant and he was like, what do you mean you'll fix it? And I said, I'll fix it. And I was like, put, put corporal stripes on me, make me an NCO, give me that power. Cause that's what I thought it was. Um, and he did. And I was a terror. Uh, like I think a lot of young NCOs, um, I thought that's what leadership was, was scuffing dudes up and, and working them to the bone. Um, and I did. And because of that, my guys were successful and the platoon got better and it was kind of infectious, right? Like it, like once you start down that path and then guys start doing better and getting better at things, um, it kind of spreads and the, and the bad eggs kind of weed themselves out and disappear over time. Um, and we ended up with a rock solid platoon and, you know, I was at E5 before I knew it um did a deployment to kuwait like there was a lot of opportunity that came from that but at the end of the day even though i was enjoying it i was enjoying the education doing something different on the mechanized side we were 4.2 inch mortars and then we were 120 millimeter mortars so i had that going on the trip to kuwait was great we shot a bunch of rounds which we never did at home back then like they just didn't have the money um but yeah i got to do a lot of really good things but it wasn't enough um it wasn't enough to change how I felt about leaving the regiment um, and the fact that I thought I was going to have that black cloud over my head for the rest of my career. Um, and even though I made E5 in like record time, in spite of getting in trouble, I still felt like it was going to, it was going to hamper my career and it was going to prevent me from achieving my ultimate goal, which was, you know, being a special forces guy and, and, or, or ended up in the, in the Delta force. But we can agree that that was all in your head. It they was. told you this is a fresh start. They gave you corporal stripes. They put you in charge when you asked to be in charge. That is all a figment of your thinking. No one else's. Yeah. It's like on the one hand, like that, that perfectionist in me that wanted to get better and do things faster and, and, you know, understand it all and know it all better than anybody else and, and outperform everybody that same drive. It was like, I couldn't see it when it came to that other stuff. It was like, I had this chip of you screwed up and there's no getting around it and that's the end so just work hard enjoy your time because life's better when you bust your ass like this and they treat you really good because you're a hard worker and then get out and hold your head high and, and move on and go back to college or whatever now but not that's how I felt. Now, now not only do they give you your stripes that you asked for they promote you to e5 but then they ask you to take over a recon section Oh no. So that's a year later. Okay. So that's in, yeah. That's in but, the 82nd, but they yeah. let you, they, they, okay. So let's they, hold off on that because I want to talk about the reclassing and everything where you finally get your 11 B and everything. Yeah. So long story short, um, I end up, they end up, the battalion commander actually asked to come see me when he hears that I'm going to get out. Cause I was asked, I was in my reenlistment window. Um, and they asked me to go see Colonel Lee and I, I've told this story before, but you know, the battalion commander asking to see some sergeant in headquarters company in the mortar platoon because he's getting out is not a common thing. Um, and that was obvious. Like, I knew that. So 
clearly I'd done something right to have an impact enough to where the battalion commander wanted to talk to me. And I got down there and, you know, he, he was really candid. He was like, you know what, Chris, he's like, you came here after having made a mistake in the Ranger Regiment, you, you picked your head up, you know, you, you drove on and, and you, you've grown into a good leader here. And it would be a, a huge loss to the army if, if, if you were to just walk away. So basically like, what do I have to do to convince you to stay in? He said some nice things. He took the time as a commander to speak to an individual soldier about his professional career. Um, and I asked him straight up, I was like, you know, I told him about my worries about being hampered by the letter of reprimand and getting in trouble and getting a DUI. And, and he said, you know, that he could, he could help with that, that he could basically move that to a portion of my file, my restricted fish. We always laugh about that too. Nobody but S1 dudes know what that is, but, um, but yeah. And, he said, if I could do that, would you reenlist? And I said, yeah, if you don't think it's going to slow me down. And he laughed when I said that. He was like, you're, you're an NCO now. He's like, you've been in the Army for three years and you're a sergeant. Like, you're, you are well on track to be well ahead of your peers. Um, and yeah, and it worked. And he convinced me and I reenlisted. Um, the joke of it was after saying all those nice things to me, I told him I didn't want to stay in his battalion. <laughs> and I told him I wanted to go back to being a paratrooper. But he understood, um, as a good commander would. And knowing that I started out in the regiment, he, I, I think he got that it got me one step back to, to where I wanted to be. Um, and, and yeah, he helped me out and I reenlisted and I went up to the 82nd, um, ended up assigned an Alpha Company 2nd 325 and I took a mortar section right away. Um, we had an outgoing E6. Uh, and so I took over as a young E5 and, and ran the mortar section for a line company. Do you ever think at a point in your life, you laughed at the Marine recruiter, this battalion commander does everything he can to, to keep you in the army. And you tell him that after you say any of these things, does it ever go through your brain? Like, Oh shit, I might've just stepped in it again. Or are you just like, man, eh, whatever uh, you know may what? come, may come. I think, uh, I think my whole life to a fault, I have always said what I felt. And what I was thinking, um, and uh, while honesty has got me in trouble a few times for maybe saying something that I should have metered a little bit, um, for the most part, it's always worked out. Like just being candid and saying exactly what you mean and exactly how you feel. It doesn't mean it was always right, but I think people always appreciated the fact that I was unafraid to say it. Um, and it, and like I said, it worked in my favor a number of times. It worked in my favor the day that I walked into Third ID, um, and and on the way out. Uh, and then it worked just out, worked out fine in the 82nd as well. When you go to the 82nd, are you thinking you're, you're not quite back at the regiment, but you're back up into that class of individual. It felt good. It felt good. There were a lot of, there were a lot of, well, I shouldn't say a lot. The percentages of high caliber soldiers were higher in the 82nd than they were in third ID. And I, I just mean as a whole, um, I've said that for years, you know, the different organizations within the services and you can pick your service, you know, the more, uh, the more times you have to volunteer to get to a place, um, the tougher, the selection, the, the more rigorous, the training there's turds in every punch bowl. It's just, as you get to the higher levels, there's less of them floating around. Um, and they don't stick around as long. So uh, when, when I got to the 82nd, like it, it felt good. Like I was, I was back jumping out of planes. I was working around a bunch of solid leaders, a bunch of guys that had done quite a bit too. Um, and, and yeah, I really did enjoy it. I liked the challenge of being a, a, a mortar section sergeant. I, I, I was like a platoon sergeant and a platoon leader because 
you know, I was an NCO in charge of the section. So I was an, an equivalent of a platoon sergeant of a line platoon, even though I was an E5 um, and they were E7s. And then I was basically a platoon leader because the commander talked to me directly to employ his mortar section in support of those rifle platoons. Um, so I would sit in both platoon sergeant and platoon leader meetings. So I would be on the officer side and on the enlisted side. And I think I learned a lot doing that, um, just seeing both sides of the equation and understanding how they think, how they work, um, and what their decision-making processes are. Did you keep your mouth shut in those and just listen? Hell no. Or, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no uh, I, I didn't. And it, you know, I like, I, I had that thing where I, I, developed some good relationships with some of the leadership. So th they all love me and, and my guys worked really hard and busted their ass and, and they all loved that. Um, and, and I was, I th frankly, I think I was just nice to everybody. Um, I used to befriend the new lieutenants when they would come in. Um, matter of fact, one of those lieutenants was the reason both I ended up reclassing 11 Bravo and moving to the reconnaissance platoon and, and also how I ended up going to selection to a special mission unit. But, um, but yeah, I was still a mouthy, uh, asshole. And the 82nd kind of promoted it. Like if you were the fastest dude in a company, um, you could talk some shit. And I was definitely the fastest dude in the company. And I talked some shit. <laughs> I want you to keep that in mind about being the best at a unit, because I think it's going to play in later on when you go to the, to a recon element, correct? Mm -hmm. You're kind of getting up there now. Now you're really starting to step up to where that level that you wanted to be. Are you more cautious of not letting that door slam in your face again? Or are you going balls out on it? Uh, I was balls out at that point. Um, the fact that the fact that I was able to, with a piece of paper and a commander's approval, switch from I had been an 11 Charlie for, for four and a half, five years and a, and a leader in that MOS, the fact that I could switch to 11 Bravo and immediately go take a scout platoon, which was, or a scout team, which was one of the most coveted positions in the battalion. Um, but no, it didn't because the scouts were ruffians. Like the, the scout platoon leader was a, was a young Lieutenant in alpha company that I had befriended. Um, and, and he believed in me and I liked him and we sort of saw eye to eye and we mutually supported each other a lot. Um, and then the, the kids in the scout platoon, they were beasts. Like they were in better shape than most of the kids in the battalion. They were a little rough around the edges uh, and they liked to bend the rules, but they were damn good at their jobs. You know, they could shoot well, they could move, they understood tactics, basic infantry tactics. They were great, great, great communicators and great at reconnaissance. And, and they liked to run around in the woods. You know, that was their, that was their dream was to be out training. Um, they definitely weren't dodging it. And I love that. So, so as you do this, uh, a chance comes up for you to go to SMU, correct? Yeah. To, yeah. to so, try out. <clears throat> yeah. So that platoon leader friend of mine, um, Paul Karen was his name. Um, I, I've told this story before, but uh, you know, I didn't know that Paul's father, uh, was actually an enlisted, he was an E9, he was a Sergeant Major and he was actually the Delta Force Sergeant Major at the time. Um, and Paul, all Paul had ever said to me was his dad was a 12 Bravo. He was a combat engineer and that he was still in the army. He was a, he was a Sergeant major. I knew he was a Sergeant major and a combat engineer, but he never told me. Um, and he never told anybody. Uh, so we didn't know. So one day we were out training and, uh, well actually to step back, Paul was the one that convinced me. And, and I just thought he was just a smart West Point Lieutenant. 
but he was the one that convinced me to go to, to, to unit selection instead of SFAS. Um, so I was old enough and had met all the precursors to go to both Green Beret selection or, or unit selection. Um, and Paul was the one that said, why don't you try? He's like, that's where you want to end up anyway. And I was like, well, they're not going to take me. And, you know, I had all these preconceived notions like I needed to have combat experience. Nothing was written on paper. It was just stuff that I had made up in my head. Once again. Um, yeah. And Paul had, con, con, you know, basically explained that that wasn't the case, that, hey, I, I can go apply. If they ask me to attend, it means I'm enough. I just need to go get through selection and and, and boards and whatever else they do. Um, and so, yeah, so that's what I did. Um, and I ended up going the first time in 2000. Uh, I went fall of 2000. Um, I made it all the way up to, to the next to the last day and I got pulled. Um, and they told me it was failure to meet the time standard, which is kind of the common thing. You, you know, guys either get hurt or you get pulled and they tell you failure to meet the time standard. Um, but they, my outbrief was good. You know, they told me, hey, you know, you did a good job and you did a good enough job that we'd like to see you come back. Um, again, in my own head, uh, I went, they're testing me because I was crushing this <laughs> and they just want to see, cause I'm a young guy. If I'll come back and do it again, um, could have been the case, could not, but that's what I thought. And, and that was <laughs> motivation enough for me to try even harder the next time. Okay. But here's where it's confusing for me because your, your brain goes in like seven different directions. It really does. And your story does. So you go and you're in the 82nd and you're fucking crushing it in the 82nd you're doing exactly what you wanted to do this guy tells you go try out for the unit you go try out they tell you you're good but not quite good enough they send you mm -hmm. back and ask you to come back i gotta understand with everything you and i have talked about about the way you think i gotta i i just gotta understand because it feels like that at certain points when you don't spiral that you would spiral and at other points when you shouldn't, that's when you do. So I, I got to understand how you're coming back and forth between all this, because you're being great here and okay here and then great here and then great here. And then just okay here. And it, it, it's such a ping pong effect. I think um, when it was something that I felt like I could control. So when, when I wasn't, when I didn't do something fast enough or I wasn't smart enough or I wasn't well-trained enough or whatever, those were things that I felt like I could impact and I could control. Whereas mistakes that I had made, I felt like that's our, that ship's already sailed. Like it is what it is. And I think those were the circumstances that caused me to really have self-doubt. Whereas, you know, somebody beating me down in a scenario, okay, fine, I'm going to get stronger and faster and I'm going to kick your ass the next time. Like I definitely had that. I had that from athletics growing up. I had that from the competitive side and I liked that challenge. It was when I did something stupid um, and I felt like there was nothing I could do to change it. Like in the case of the DUI um, that I think those are the ones that I had the toughest time with. Do you think at any of this moment before you go back, before you make it into the unit, because as we all know, you make it in. Is there PTS or anything going on right now? Is there anything that you know long-term that you and I have talked about a lot, and that's alcohol addiction, anything, is any of that rearing its head right now? No. Not, not, yeah. even, a, not even a glimmer on the sun? No. No, I mean, I was a young father at the time. Um, my, my oldest daughter, Taylor, was born in 1998, in May of 1998. So I had a young child. 
And then my second daughter was born in between me failing selection the first time and then passing it a year later. Um, she was born in 2001. Um, so pre September 11th. And I was the, I, I was in the nine 11 selection class in West Virginia. Okay. So you go in and that's a story in its own that you're in the nine 11 selection class, because do you think that that puts a whole new emphasis on you? Because that, that level of world, I guess you would say world conflict had not been around. Yeah. There'd been desert shield, desert storm. And I think you were part of desert, uh, something Thunder, desert thunder. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's all these things, but it never was at that level. Do you think you going in at that time, it, it changes the trick trajectory right off the bat? Yeah. I mean, being the nine 11 class and trying out for, for the premier unit in the world and knowing, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no other place in the service you could be that with a greater guarantee of you're going to find yourself in combat soon. Uh, that was for me motivating because when nine 11 happened, just like everybody else, I was floored. I was angry. I, I, you know, there's never a time that I've ever felt more sense of pride and wanting to do something for my country um, and my family than when that happened. So I think for all of us in that class, um, it was incredibly motivating uh, to, to go in that time frame and to know that we need to do our best and we need to get this done so that we can get the training necessary to go do our part. How does it feel to be around everybody around you is thinking the exact same way as you in these other units you've had some some not everybody is thinking the exact same thing as you now i was in all even in selection because i was such a young guy um i mean i think most guys in the service just like me they had these preconceived notions so a lot of guys whether it was self-doubt or whether it was those preconceived notions they waited a long time before they reached out and they tried to get asked to come to selection. Um, like I said, I had that little angel on my shoulder of Paul that convinced me to do it as a young guy. So when I got there, you know, I'm in selection with guys that have been in, they've been a green beret for a decade. They've been at war in other places. They've jumped into combat. They're army ranger platoon sergeants. They're, you know, I'm, I'm substantially younger than most of the people there. So, you know, I just wanted, even in selection, it already sort of already started me on that process of, I got to work extra hard here because these guys are, are barrel chested freedom fighters, man. And I just want to keep up. Um, and I think I took that as a challenge, like in a good way. Um, and that carried into the operator training course. I think I felt the same way. I was wide eyed and, and a sponge and sucking it all in. And I think it shaved off a lot of that that I had because I was the best in units that I'd been in previously. And, and this was a completely different animal where I was learning things and doing things that I'd never done with a bunch of guys that were all beasts that were all stellar performers and frankly all felt like they were way smarter than me um, and just had a lot more life experience. So um, yeah, I think that was, I think it was motivating. I think instead of being scared of it, um, I was intimidated, but it was motivating to, to try harder. Okay. Remember when I said, remember about you saying when you're the fastest, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. So you get around these guys and I want an honest assessment from you. Where are you at compared to these guys? You've already said that you thought they were smarter, but honestly, where are you at compared to these guys on a scale? Yeah, so PT-wise, um, like running and, and 
all that jazz. Uh, I felt good. I, I, I held my own. I was in shape. Um, like I said, I wasn't a very big guy. I think at the time I weighed like 165 pounds or something, but, um, but yeah, I could do all that stuff where I felt the deficit was there were a lot of guys like in the operator training course, there were a lot of guys that have been shooting for a ton of years and, and shooting really well. Um, so some of those dudes were phenomenal on the range from day one. And I'm like trying to catch every little nugget of information and get better every single day. Cause I just frankly hadn't done that much shooting. I mean, you just didn't shoot in peacetime army. Like you went, you did your qualifications. I mean, you know, as well as I do, you go do your, your quarterly or your annual or whatever. And you just didn't spend a lot of time on the range. And I certainly didn't have a lot of time behind a pistol. So I had to really work and try and come in on weekends and shoot extra. Like I had to do the necessary things to try to catch up and keep up with those guys. Um, yeah, I felt behind the curve for sure. And so here's where we start you and I, when we talked on the phone, this is where we start to make that spread between your family and your new family. This is where you really start to see it. Um, yeah. So how are you being a young father being at the absolute peak of your career? Cause I mean, this, is, I wouldn't say the peak of your career, but definitely on par to be at the peak of your career. Uh, but you have these things at home, but you've got to prove here. Do we start seeing slippage? Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I've said for years, I think, um, to be, to be at that top 1% of performance in anything. Um, so you, to, you know, professional golf, professional football, baseball, uh, or, or in the military to be in that top 1% and to perform at that level, um, there's some guys that are just flat out gifted, uh, and, 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 and pick it up fast and can do it. But the majority of us have to work really, really hard at that. And when you're working that hard and you're that mentally and physically invested in just trying to keep up, um, to stay where you are and to perform at that level, you guys tend to develop some character flaws. Um, and it, it's common in sports, you know, some of the greatest athletes we've ever known, we're not necessarily great people off the court or off the course or whatever. Um, and there's, there's a million and one examples of that. And I think it's a direct correlation between that and, and with the organization that I work for. Um, so for me, that was the, the first time where I started to shut off the outside world. And it was, it was part of it was survival. Um, and it wasn't like I turned it off completely, you know, I could go home and be fine, but when I went to work, I had to be on. Um, and so, yeah, that was definitely the door opener for starting to learn that unhealthy habit of shutting off everything in my life to just focus on what I was doing. Um, but just like later on in combat, it was about survival. It was about keeping up and continuing to progress through the course that I was in to make it into this organization that, that frankly, I, I you know, I was amazed that I was continuing every day. Uh, and, and just delighted. So I was going to continue to work as hard as I could. Cause I, I didn't want to mess up that opportunity. I felt like I was so lucky to be there, um, that I didn't want to screw that up. So here's where, where I'm saying, and I've asked this to many guys that have been, and, and you've seen the list of people that I've talked to. I asked this, why is it so important to push this away? to earn this or to gain this or to go back to it over and over again. And I really want to know because every single person has a different answer. 
I think it's a combination of things. Um, I think eventually you get to a point, and this is as it goes on, but I think you get to a point where um, you do identify the fact that you're really good at something and you're really good at hunting bad guys and doing bad things to bad people. Um, and it becomes, uh, the easier path of your life. Um, it becomes the less difficult to navigate portion of your life because you've worked so hard you've trained at such a high level to maintain that level and that mindset that it, it becomes your safe space. So it almost feeds the negative shutting off of everything else. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, it's, it's definitely an evolution. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I think, you know, the, the vast majority of guys get to some form or fashion of that as the years go by. Do you see it happening? Are you conscious of it or is it a subconscious thing happening? Uh, I see things in guys now. Um, I can have a conversation with, you know, I'm retired obviously, and, but I still touch the community. I'm around it a lot. And I can have a conversation with active duty guys and see me in them, um, at that point in my life. Uh, and one of the reasons that I speak out and that I talk, um, isn't just to benefit, you know, veterans that have been through things like I have and that have their own struggles, but it's hopefully to shed some light on some subjects for guys that are still in and that might be in the early stages of that and might be able to do something about it now. Um, that'll be better for them and their families in the long run. Looking back, is it as important as you thought it was? What turning it all off? Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, there are certainly a number of instances in my life where I feel like if I had one ounce of distraction, I would not have lived through them. Um, or maybe my teammates wouldn't. Um, in, in spite of the level of training and how good, you know, the guys around me were, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I, like a lot of guys will tell you, you know, you're fighting every day to be average. Like that's how good that organization is. And that's how big the things that are asked of you are. Um, so, you know, I don't know the answer. Um, but I think a little bit of, a little bit of that other side flaw kind of comes with the territory and it's unfortunate. Um, I think op tempo is probably one of the only ways that you could, you can help control that, you know, just reducing the frequency or, or the amount of times that guys are asked to do that. Um, but, but, you know, circumstances don't work in our favor. Like sometimes op tempo is dictated by what's going on in the world and somebody has got to go do it. And, and that organization that I was lucky enough to be part of, you know, 99% of the time, they're the guys that are asked to go do it. Uh, so I, and I'm not really sure how you fix it, but, um, but yeah, I mean, that's why I say, like, I try to do my part to just shed a little light on it. So guys understand, um, you know, that's a, that's a very small portion of your life and it is possible to do that and then heal and then move on with the rest of your life and be something else and do something different and be proud of what you're doing, you know, today. And I, I just, I try to point that out for folks. With you, though, and with that organization, it's so small. There's only a couple different outcomes. You said op tempo. Those guys are usually the ones that are asked to go do it. That's a very small community. You would agree still to this day. It's a very small community. Microscopic. Okay. With being a microscopic community and with the world being the way it is, the world's not changing. 
I don't know if I would say it's getting worse, but it's definitely not going back to the way it used to be. It's not going back 20, 23 years ago ever again. It will never be back there again. So that op tempo is going to stay. And with a microscopic family, you have one of two choices. You either ask those guys, do this, do this, do this, do this, and continue to do it until they're worn out, or you lower the standards, you bring in other people, and you make your microscopic organization a little bit larger. And then there's a whole new mess of trouble that comes with that. So It's already happened much, yeah. So with that, you really can't change it. Nope. There, there's not a solution to it. And as much as I hate to say that, it's just like in law enforcement with people being less and less likely to join law enforcement with the things that we've seen in the past two or three years. You start lowering your standards. You bring other people in, which causes other problems, which puts you in an OODA loop. Yep. So you OODA burn those guys out. What's that? <laughs> so that's a good word for it. Yeah. So you you put these guys out there over and over again. So I guess my question would be to you, stepping back away from it, looking in on it, if there's no solution, how do we at least fix the problem or patch the problem or band-aid the pro However you want to pour syrup on that shit, how do we do it? Vote correctly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. No, no, no. So in all honesty, you know, one of the things that does impact that cycle is politics, right? Absolutely. Um, American resolve and American political resolve and American foreign policy changes like uh, with every administration um, and sometimes during administrations. And at the end of the day, every organization in the Department of Defense is an extension of policy, whether they want to think of it that way or not, you're an extension of policy. So uh, no shit. Like think about the people that you choose to represent you as an American citizen and vote. The second thing is compromise. Like we're so screwed up right now. Like you have politicians doing things that you know in their heart, they don't really believe, but there's so much pressure to go all the way one direction or all the way the other that, that it's causing a very uncomfortable environment. And when you put our military in a seesaw situation like that, where and, and we saw a little taste of this where, you know, everybody was behind something and we went and did these things. And then as the years went by and that resolve loosened and administrations changed, then the narrative started changing. That is a really slippery soap where like like with law enforcement, what you're going to see and what you're seeing in the military right now is a failure to fill the ranks um, and, and you're going to you're going to have problems. So while I don't think you can you can change the aspect on the pointy end. Um, I think there's a handful of organizations within the United States that are always going to be asked to do, do certain things. Um, I think the American people are how we change and affect that. I don't, th I think those organizations have a responsibility and if it means that they use up the operator, um, you know, you volunteer to be there and it, it a little, it a little. Let, pains let me, me be, let that. me be devil's advocate for a second, though. Doesn't that feel weird to say that you've got, you've got people that are willing to put it all on the line for whatever you need, and to tell that person to look them in the eye and say, "Whenever we're done with you, we're just done with you." That's that's got to feel strange, especially coming from you. Um, you know, Mike Golick. I've said this before. Mike, when when Mike and Mike was on the air, 
Uh, Mike Golick said one time, and it was in the middle of all the concussion science and understanding with the NFL. And they said that, however, the question was framed, Mike Golick said, knowing everything that I know today about concussive events and head impacts and all the science and all the things that are happening to people and could happen to you and, and how much, how many years you could take off your life and impact your loved ones. Would I still have done exactly what I did if I knew all that information? And he said, absolutely, I would. Why? Because only a handful of people are capable, are capable of performing and serving at that level and in that capacity. And that is a responsibility that is bigger than any of the politics, than any of the other stuff. The fact that there are Americans that are willing to step up and assume those risks and pursue that level of excellence to be that good, to be that pointy end is an absolute necessity. And you're always going to have guys that are going to step up and do that. Um, and it sucks, but, but, but it's a reality. And, and I agree with you completely. I guess the point that I'm getting at with that is if you look around and we talked about politicians and stuff, you have politicians that get their benefits for the rest of their life. They could be a politician for two years, a day, whatever it may be. You got guys that put it on the line for 20, 25, 30 years that don't get yeah. those benefits. They just yeah. say, we're done with you. Perspective and priorities are very fucked up these days. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And, it, you know, and it, well, I, I do want to go back to something that you said earlier. So it does it does ebb and flow, right? Okay. Like the the generation of operators that I came behind, um, peacetime operator is not the right word because they were doing things all over the world. Absolutely. But if you ask those guys. You know, if you ask the guys that were my instructors um, and that brought me up and then were my leadership down the road, you know, the only real engagement that they chalked up, they did some stuff in Bosnia. You know, there were guys that did some Grenada, guys that did some Panama. And then you had some guys in Somalia. Um, like Somalia was it. Like most of the TTPs and a lot of the training was Somalia centric. It was focused on those types of events. It was focused on the other things outside of that, like hostage rescue and, you know, whatever. Um, and that evolved over the years, but they didn't do nearly what we did in 02, 03, 04, 05, 06, uh, and then continued to evolve globally, 07, 08, 09. And then we were in even more countries in 10, 11, and then, it, and then the downswing started. But the operator of today, you know, those guys are chomping at the bit because, they're looking at old guys and they're going, man, this guy's got to do so much. And we're the opposite. We're going, hey, man, be happy that you can go out and train and be that good. Like we actually lost skills. Like we, were, we weren't as good at competition shooters as we were in the 90s because we were so busy. Um, we were great at war. But a lot of those real fine tasks like that, the generation before us was way better at because their training cycle was much better than ours because they weren't deployed all the time. Um, so it does, it does ebb and flow. Um, and I, 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 but I agree. I don't know that it'll ever go back. Uh, I think there's always going to be some level of activity, but I, you know, I'll tell you, there's, there's dudes right now that want to go do stuff because they're bored. Well, let's talk about your training a little bit and it's a nice segue into it. Um, you, <laughs> we talked about this, you had a little bit of, I don't want to say trouble in training because I don't think you had trouble in training, but you had a very um, 
interesting training cycle. You were shot twice in training. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never like, in combat. Yeah. <laughs> Never in combat. Shot twice in training. Um, you still stay at it. You still do what you're doing. Um, and then I want to kind of talk about as you end that you were always the man away from the man. Um, so let's first talk about training. And when you see this happen in training, how you don't look around and go, shit, if that's happening here, I can't even imagine what's going to happen on the backside of this. Yeah, I did. I, uh, I, I shot twice in training. I always say I got all my bad luck out in training. Um, the first one I was, uh, doing some range training with the team and we were proofing the lane and it was shooting from inside of a vehicle outside of a vehicle. So you blindfolded the guy, you drove him around, you stopped the vehicle, you pulled the blindfold off and he had to react to whatever targets were outside of the vehicle. And the drill was designed to get you used to shooting in a confined space of the vehicle to get you to shoot through the glass without hesitation and realize that car parts other than engine blocks and wheel wells don't stop bullets. Um, but it was trying to go through a bunch of things and engage him with multiple threats outside the target. Well, the very first time we proofed the lane, uh, my team leader at the time, Jesse, um, Jesse driving me around and I'm sitting in the passenger seat and we stopped, pull the blindfold off and the targets were off to my right side. So I leaned into Jesse and I shoot two quick rounds into the target out the right side passenger window. Um, and so my muzzle is literally, you know, maybe even an inch off the glass. It might've even been touching, but as the bullets leave the muzzle of the rifle, you know, they're super hot and I was shooting green tip and it stripped the copper jacket off of the bullets. So the first two rounds and threw them into both my thighs. Um, and when I say threw them into my thighs, I mean, I took bullet fragments all the way to the bone in both legs. Uh, so it felt like, it felt like I got hit in the thighs with a baseball bat. So I continued to shoot and engage the rest of the targets. I didn't like stop in the middle of that. I kept firing and I got done. And Jesse was like, cool. And I go, man, that fucking hurt. And he's like, what are you talking about? And I go, the muzzle blast, like the slap that I got off that window was incredible. And, you know, there's a lot of times, especially when guys are shooting short barrels, you get too close to somebody in the room, you feel that muzzle blast on your face or on your body or whatever. And I just thought that's what it was, but it really, really hurt. And so we drove back over to where the team was. We got out and I'm still complaining. And Jesse made a comment about, you know, Chris is being a puss and little muzzle blast hurt him in the car, but we're all good. And uh, the medic looks at me and says, check your legs. And I look down. Um, and I got blood coming out of both my, you know, I was wearing old Woodland camo pants and I was bleeding in about 10 different spots. Um, so they drove me up to the aid station. I walked in, uh, and, uh, the PA that was working at the time, uh, saw me across the room and said, man, what happened to you? And I said, I shot myself. <laughs> and so that was always a joke between us. And then, so yeah, that was the first time, um, total fluke. I'd done that drill a bunch of times. I'm sure there's cops and military dudes that have done that drill a ton and never had anything like that happen. I think it was a fluke event, but it did happen. Um, and then the second one, I was in a shoot house. We were shooting into bullet traps in a concrete shoot house. Um, so bullet trap, you got steel sidewalls on three sides. You got a big, thick rubber, 18 inch rubber block on the inside, paper target on the outside of the rubber block. Um, the, uh, the space between the rubber interior block and the steel sidewall of the bullet trap is about an inch. Uh, and we came into a room. I went long. There were some obstacles in the room. And so I had to go kind of pie around those obstacles. So I got to a point where nobody else in the room could see me. I turned, 
the target was directly in front of me. And as I was shooting into the target, another guy looking between basically a couple of wall lockers had a clear line of fire, could see the target and called shot. Um, he shot off a couple of rounds at an extreme angle, not knowing that I was directly in front of it. Uh, the rounds went into only about an inch of the rubber block because of the angle he was shooting, hit the steel sidewall, and I took frag from all those rounds in my face. Um, the scary part of that one was I had just taken my Oakleys off my head and stuck them in my pocket uh, because it was summertime and I was sweating and they were fogging up and I got sick of it. So I literally had taken my eye probe off like seconds before that happened. Um, and so anybody that's ever been cut in the face or head, you know, you bleed like a sieve. So that's I turn right. around, put my hands in my face and, you know, blood's just pouring down. Um, and, and the guy that did it, you know, it wasn't anything wrong with what he did. It was just a fluke uh, that it happened. And he thought he shot me like he thought, you know, ricochet something. He didn't know what happened. He thought he shot me in the face. Um, so that was a kind of a wild moment. Um, I ended up taking my kid off pulled my t-shirt off and I was using my t-shirt just to kind of stop the blood. One of the medics looked at me, you know, checked my eyesight. I could still see, but I had, you know, perforations all over my face. Um, and so I drove up to the aid station and I walked in the front door and this is when they still used to see families. And so the families, you know, it was the women and kids, you know, people's wives sitting over in the chairs and the same doc that, was in there the year before is still in there. And he goes, Chris, did you shoot yourself again? And, you know, I walk in shirtless with a bloody rag on my face. And, and, uh, and that one, I was really fortunate with that. I, I, I still have shrapnel in several places in my body, but that one, I have a piece in my left eye orbit that sits right back next to my optic nerve. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, but, uh, so in spite of getting shot twice in training and never in combat, which I'm grateful for the fact that I have all that shrapnel in my body means that I could never have an MRI. Um, which would become really important later on when I received a TBI diagnosis and they couldn't do any brain scans or actually confirm where the substantial damage was. So uh, it's kind of a thing that's haunted me that I, I tell as a funny story, but uh, man, it was a stroke of bad luck. And so all this, it's still worth it. We move over into combat. Um, a lot of people talk to you in a lot of your interviews about the Saddam story. I told you, I don't want to talk about that. Good it, for you. It's a, it's a, I, and I think you're happy about that too, but I want to moment in my life, but yes, it's been talked about way too much. I, I, I want to talk about, because I kind of want to set the stage because what you and I have agreed on is this is all about what happened mentally. So I want to set the stage with, other stories about combat and about you being in those forward areas that really start us down that path. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, the first one, my first wake up call in combat was, was April 2nd. And the story has been told Brad Thomas and some other guys have told the April 2nd story. Um, and you'd get it from a different perspective, depending on who you ask from our squadron from that particular day. But that was the day we lost Andy Fernandez. That was during the invasion of Oh three. Um, he was one of the first guys killed in the war in Iraq. Uh, and we had some other guys wounded, um, but not substantially, but, but Annie was shot and killed. That was the first time I had lost a coworker, um, in combat. And then the realization of that person's gone and dead, but the mission doesn't stop. You just continue to move forward and do the next thing. And so I, when I look back on that, I think about the fact that you, aren't allowed time to process what just happened. 
because mentally you have to focus on the next objective. Um, so that was the first time I ever experienced that. It was the first time I had to compartmentalize something. Um, but look, hindsight, looking back on that, it was like training, right? Like that was the first time that happened where shit, oh my God, this is awful. I want to think about this. I want to think about that. What about his family? What if that happens to one of us? Never mind. I got to bottle all that up and put it in a little box in the back of my head and move on because I got other things to do and I need to be 100% focused or something else bad's going to happen. Um, so that was one. Um, two what's was, the time frame on that? From, like you said, you don't have time to process. So what's the time from that to the next thing you got to be on? Uh, that day. I mean, okay. we were in a, we were in a eight hour firefight on that day, you know, 40 guys versus 300 plus guys. Um, and luckily, you know, American air power and a bunch of other assets on our side and, and ballistic overmatch, you know, we had some big guns and some long guns that could reach out and touch them and we were damn good at it. Um, so, you know, what could have turned into a serious tragedy and a loss of a lot of loss of life. Um, we were lucky that we lost one guy and, and, and they lost a whole lot. So moving on to the second one. So, um, how far are we talking into uh, on that one? How far are we into your first career? Uh, uh, excuse me. The first one, how far are we into your career? It's my second deployment. Okay. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm six, seven years in the army. Okay. Um, my first deployment was to Afghanistan. Um, and I, I've said this last time, great deployment. We did some hits, not a lot. Um, in the, in the early days of Afghanistan, besides gecko that happened originally where they were going after Mullah Omar. And that was the first strike into Afghanistan post 9-11, um, it was pretty slow going. Um, the intelligence community was really working on targeting and, and how to develop target packages. Um, and we weren't sort of playing the whack-a-mole game that we were later on in, in GWAT, where we got really good at that stuff. Um, so it was slow. We did about six hits. Uh, I never pulled the trigger in Afghanistan. Threw some flashbangs. Um, you know, we, we took some targets down. We did some reconnaissance missions and other stuff like that. It was a great time. Um, but I, ne I never pulled the trigger. So I learned a lot on that trip. And then the next thing that happened was the invasion of Iraq. Um, again, completely different mission set. You know, I went from the mountains of Afghanistan to driving for days on end across the desert of Iraq um, and doing a mobility mission, a true desert mobility mission, which really hadn't happened since the last Gulf War. Um, and then prior to that, World War II uh, in North Africa. So that was interesting. So this was April 2nd. This was um that's all light-skinned vehicles moving as fast as you can correct yep this is a week into the invasion of iraq that we lost andy uh and then so at the end of that firefight we continued to move um eventually we after a number of targets and engagements along the way we ended up in tikrit and then we were relieved by another squadron in tikrit and got to go home for a little while uh and then we came back for a surge around September-ish, uh, where we were over there for a few weeks. Then we went home for two weeks. Then we came back for our second true deployment uh, around about October of, of 03. Okay. Before we go on with that, the first time you go back, you're relieved into Crit, you get to go home. How long are you home? Uh, let's see. We left in May. We probably went home end of April early May. So I was home May, June, July, August. I was home three months. And then we came back for the surge end of August, early September. Okay. And we were there. Yeah. May, June, July, August. So you come back. How long have you been married? 
this is oh two now oh three so i've been married since 97 98 okay. yeah so like five years okay uh two daughters are already here yep a baby and a toddler you come back let's talk about the first time you come back yeah wow that's a long lost memory um it was cool to come home um it was cool to see my girls i really missed them um i think that those first couple trips in particular they were so different iraq and afghanistan were so different and iraq iraq became very real like afghanistan it was just like cool i'm a delta operator and we just did some cool shit, but nothing really happened during that particular rotation and then Iraq, it was like, wow, we just invaded a country. Like it was a substantially different experience. We had lost a coworker. Um, you know, some guys had been injured. We killed some guys <laughs> a number of times. Uh, it dropped a lot of bombs. Like it was just a wild experience. So I was very grateful to be home. Um, yeah, I remember missing my kids, but then I remember sort of mentally thinking about when the next time we were going over was. Um, and yeah, I've said this before, like as the years go by, uh, you come home and you're happy because you missed home. And then as the weeks and months go by, you start thinking about the next deployment. Um, you start getting that in your head. You start thinking less about home and more what you're getting ready to do. Um, and then you're in, you know, pre-deployment training and, and then you're full on focused on work and then you're deployed, um, and you're totally engrossed. Well, that time of, being home and relaxing and chilling and enjoying your family got shorter and shorter and shorter mentally every combat deployment that I did. So, you know, it got to the point where after, you know, eight, nine, 10 deployments, you know, I'd come home and literally like home would make me miserable because it was all this chaos. Like you're stepping back into someone else's life. There's, you know, they do things a certain way when you're not there, you're just trying to be dad and a big teddy bear, but you got all this stuff in your head and, and so that time of being comfortable and happy at home got shorter and shorter and shorter each time in between each rotation. And that was definitely part of like the mental breakdown cycle. First time you come home, are you getting along with your wife? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Drinking. Uh, we did. Um, no, okay. not, not that I remember. I mean, I drank, but not, not of excessively. Course. Right. Yeah. But life is good. Yeah. Life's good. Okay. Yeah. Not, not really any problems on the first one coming back. Nope. Okay. So you go yeah, back not, over there. Not the first, not the second. Um, after the second, yeah, we did the invasion. We came home, we had a few months off. Uh, and then we went back for the third. So this is October. Um, yeah. October 31st of 2003. That was a big day. That was one of them. Yep. Um, that was our first foreign fighter target. First time we ever saw foreign fighters in Iraq. And that was pre-capture of Saddam. Um, I always say that because it was significant like that for us, that was when the light bulb went off that, you know what, people are going to come here to kill Americans. Like we're, we're going to end up in a situation where people from various countries throughout the Middle East and Africa are going to come here to get in the fight. Uh, and that was kind of a weird thing. Uh, the Brits lost a couple guys that night on target. Um, it was a pretty hairy night, but, uh, yeah, that was my, that was my in a second time where 
all right, things are evolving and it's starting to change and, and we seem to be getting in gunfights more often than we used to. Um, and then about a month after that, we did a hit in Southern Iraq. Uh, we used to do a lot of land on the X stuff back then, flying in helos and whatnot. And we flew into an objective. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name. We was a bad dude that was bringing dudes into the country and, and we, um, we called him Eminem, but, um, we flew in, land on the X, and and on infill, landed on the target. We were putting two little birds, one on the roof of each house, um, and one in the courtyard. And then we were landing some hawks in the field next to it. And as we were coming in, a couple like crazy stuff happened. There was definitely gunfire. Um, and when you're on a little bird, you know it's so loud you can't hear. Occasionally you'll catch a flash. Occasionally you'll catch a crack, but you can't really tell until the birds leave when you come in on a little bird, particularly on a roof. But we flared on the roof and there was a mattress on the roof, which there had been accidents where that's been sucked into the rotor blade and torn a bird apart. So we were worried about that, but it ended up, you know, the guy flared and it blew the mattress off. Um, and, you know, we entered through the rooftop and, and top down. Um, guys on the other building definitely were taking some fire, but they did the same. Guys in the courtyard seemed to be fine. We didn't have any issues. Uh, one of the two hawks that was coming in, guy ran out from the tree line and shot an RPG just as the hawk was flaring to set down. Um, and it actually split the two pilots. So the hawk was so close to the guy shooting the RPG that the rocket didn't have enough time to arm itself. It hadn't gone far enough to accurately arm it, to actually arm itself. And it, so just like a blunt object, it cut completely through the bottom of the helicopter, through the control panel between the pilot and co-pilot and the Blackhawk, out the roof and through one of the rotor blades. Um, so didn't blow up, didn't anything. The bird set down like normal. Rangers and a couple other guys got off of the bird, uh, dealt with some of the guys that were <laughs> causing trouble. Um, and the bird attempted to lift off with all the bells and whistles going off in the cockpit. Um, and ended up having to set down in the field, like probably five, 600 meters from, from the target buildings that we were in. Um, so, you know, at that point we had cleared down through the house. We had dealt with some folks in the house. Um, we had made entry and secured both of the buildings on the, in the, in the target area. Uh, we still had a bunch of squirters and we had a bunch of fire external to the target and some things that we were dealing with. And we still had some outside buildings that needed to be cleared. Um, and I actually, you know, Tom Satterley, who's a friend of mine and whether my troop commander at the time actually had to make the call over the radio that we have a black Hawk down. And for a guy that was a, you know, Somalia vet, um, as a young unit member, uh, having heard that call in 1993 and knowing all the things that came after that, all the loss and trauma and, and just fighting their ass out of there, um, having to make that call over the radio, I think it made everybody's hairs on the back of their neck and the troops stand up like, uh Oh, um, that is not the words that you want to hear. Uh, what it turned out being was the, um, the RPG had punched a hole in one of the rotor blades. Uh, so it, it, they lost some lift essentially, but, um, they ended up having to, uh, replace the rotor blade and turn off all the bells and whistles. And they ended up flying the thing home eventually. But, um, but it, so the next thing that happened after that call was <clears throat> we had cleared the house internally. We were all secure inside, but a lot of those houses in Iraq had external kitchens. So they were attached to the main house, but the entrance to them was exterior to the house. You couldn't get to them from inside and had to do with heat in the summertime and, you know, not warming up the whole house. And so one of the teams, uh, one of our sister teams was moving around the outside to clear the outside of the house and, uh, 
got to that external kitchen, um, sort of pied off the door, you know, under night vision, um, guy was standing in the corner, uh, team took some shots, made entry, followed their shot, um, killed a couple guys in there. Uh, and then, you know, a guy kind of made a silly decision instead of, you know, clearing a body like, like you're trained to, um, he like quickly went up and put the boot, like put the boots to the guy that was slumped in the corner. Um, not his fault. You know, we had a lot of stuff going on. I, it, it's it, anyone, anybody could have done it. Uh, but you know, in hindsight, you're like, well, we, you know, we trained to do that a certain way for a very particular set of reasons. But when he kicked the guy, the guy had had a grenade in his hand when he died and he actually had had the pin out of the grenade. Um, and he died with it in his hand. So when he got kicked, he, Act, his body actually released it and the grenade rolled out and detonated and, and, uh, and put one of our operators down. Um, so again, now here we are, you know, this is our third rotation. We had Afghanistan, which was uneventful. We had the invasion of Iraq, which was very eventful, um, but relatively short and we got swapped out. Now we're back. Uh, we still haven't caught Saddam. Things are starting to change. Things are starting to heat up. Okay, here we are with another injury where we've got, you know, an eagle down. So now we had a Blackhawk down call. We had an eagle down call. Um, and when you're an operator in the building, like all you want to hear is what's going on. But nobody asked that over the radio. Um, you just sort of wait. And and I, w I was back to the rooftop at that point, you know, worrying about guys external to the target. But, but yeah, so it turned out he was okay. Um, and we ended up flying in a 47 and they replaced the rotor blade in the field after we had dealt with uh, sort of all the guys that were in the area that were causing trouble. Um, and they ended up flying that bird and the rest of us out of there after a, a pretty long night. But, um, yeah, so that was next. And then that thing we don't want to talk about again. Uh, you know, we had a bunch of hits in between there, but eventually we ended up catching some <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, yeah. And, and thought, and frankly thought we were going home. Um, like, like we accomplished our mission, even though we had dealt with foreign fighters leading up to that, uh, we thought, you know, we were tasked with being here to go get this guy and we got him. Um, but that's not what happened. Uh, I, I, I really think we had a big party that night. I think the day after we caught Saddam, we did a hit. Um, and we were still chasing both deck of cards guys. There was a couple guys that were still outstanding, like, uh, Al Dury, you know, the bald headed dude with the mustache. Um, you know, he was never found, I don't think, but we, you know, we chased him around for a while still. And then, and then, yeah, and then the foreign fighter infill continued to escalate. Uh, we bumped out in January, went home for three months, and then we were back again that summer for what would have been my fourth rotation. Any problems back at home? Yeah, so that one was a little bit different. Um, I think uh, it got very real that we didn't just have this short mission and now we're done. Like, I think a lot of us, well, I, I I'll speak for myself, I guess, but you know, I felt like we were tasked with capturing Saddam Hussein or killing him and we did it. Um, so while I wanted to go back, uh, and enjoyed being over there and enjoyed what I was doing, uh, it, it was a little bit of a weird moment in that, well, what are we doing now? Um, are we just going to continue to hunt bad guys in the Middle East? Are we going to continue to be a part of their Iraqi efforts, you know, as they try to destabilize the government? Are we going to try and help with that? Like what's going to happen? How are we going to be employed? What's the mission going to be? Um, so training started to evolve from that point. We started doing some different things. And because we had to change things up, it meant we were, you know, pretty busy and busier than normal. 
Um, so yeah, I think, uh, again, that duration of being home, being comfortable, unwinding and being a, a husband and father, I think it got a little shorter and that, that was the start of things getting a little tumultuous on the home front. Can we talk about what it means to be tumultuous on the home front? If it's not too personal. Uh, no, I mean, you live a life of such extremes, especially at that level. I mean, your life is shooting and jumping and driving, you know, when you're home and when you're overseas, it's, it's the roller coaster, emotional and adrenaline cycle of combat. Um, even when loss isn't involved, the, the level of stuff that goes on in your brain and in your body in the course of a 24 hour period, when you're doing 24 hour ops, um, so it might be night, might be day, you know, you're taking sleeping pills to get three hours of sleep when you can, uh, you know, you're mixing in a beer because eventually sleeping pills aren't working like they used to because you're taking them on the regular. Um, so you, you have a beer or two and, you know, guys are afraid to say that cause you're not supposed to drink overseas, but bullshit. We drank our asses off. Um, and not, not in excess, but we had no trouble getting a hold of, you know, beer, alcohol, um, and using it to unwind in between stuff because we were running nonstop. Are you noticing there's problems yet? Not at that point. No, okay. I don't think, I think that the next rotation summer of 04, I had a really good time. Like I was excited to go back. Um, we, we call that the summer of the exchange. That was the first time that, um, the JSOC commander, Stanley McChrystal, General McChrystal ordered the army tier one guys and the Navy tier one guys to exchange dudes. So we, we took their guys with us on a rotation and they took some of our guys with them on a rotation to Afghanistan. Cause when we did the invasion of Iraq, we took over Iraq as a theater and, and the Navy took over Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of cross pollinated again. And, and that summer was cool. Like we, we did a lot of land on the X stuff. We did a lot of commando shit that summer that frankly was fun. We called it Baghdad SWAT cause we did a lot of inner city stuff. We did a lot of big apartment building stuff. Um, yeah, we had some good times and we were very successful. Um, and that particular rotation, um, we didn't, while we got our gun on a lot, we didn't, we didn't sustain any casualties or anything. So it was a very successful, very busy, and very fun rotation. It's, it's probably the funnest, one of the funnest stretches that I remember where we were just doing what we do best day in and day out and enjoying it. So we're up to fifth deployment now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so actually, <laughs> yeah. So in 04, so after that 04 rotation, summer rotation, I, my timeline might be a little off, but it's close enough. You'll get the point. I, so I, I was in 11 Bravo. Um, and I was in the unit as 11 Bravo. So you can be in the unit as any MOS, you can be a mechanic, you can be a truck driver, whatever. Um, and you, nowadays you get an identifier that says you've been through the operative training course, but you can go there as any MOS. Um, and so I always wanted to be a green beret. And my thought process was if I ever wanted to leave the unit or I needed to leave the unit or I got in trouble and had to leave the unit, imagine the foresight, uh, I wanted to go, <laughs> I wanted to go be a, be a Green Beret and, and all you had to do, you know, coming from the unit, you didn't have to go through selection again. Um, so SFAS, you could go straight to the Q course. Um, and so I talked to my teammates and I said, Hey, you know, I want to go to the Q course, um, while we're in between rotations. Are you guys good with that? Like I'm going to be gone for six months. 
Um, and I want to make sure everybody's cool with it because we were a really tight knit group. You made a comment before we got on this call. Like I have all these pictures with the same three dudes and I really do. I mean, Brad Thomas, Mike Hefner and Chili Palmer, we were together for three straight years in combat, which is not a very common thing. Um, and we were tight. So they, those guys meant everything to me and were my big brothers and I learned everything from them. So stepping away from them was a really hard thing to do. Um, but at the same time, I was tired, um, as I think we all were. Um, we were a little bit exhausted and even whether we knew it or not, we were a little exhausted and I kind of just needed a little bit of a mental break. Um, and I was cognizant of that. So yeah, while I say I wasn't noticing the effects, I was noticing the fact that I was, I was, I was combat fatigued. Okay. But, but let me ask a question right there because I think I know your answer, but I'm not sure. Do you tell other people you're fatigued? You see it. You know you're fatigued, but do you let anyone around you know? And I mean anybody, that's your wife, your teammates, uh, your troop command, anybody. Are you letting them know, I'm fatigued? I'm I'm running on fumes right now. No, nah, I didn't. Um, and that's, a, that, I mean, that's a common thing. I don't think most guys do. I think, like I said, you're trying so hard to be average. You're trying so hard to just be in the middle um, that I don't think you would as close as you are with those guys, I don't think you would expose that level of weakness to them because you wouldn't want them to have doubts. Like I wouldn't want to feel that if one of them told me that, um, and hindsight's easy to look at it and say, Oh man, what well, you should, cause it could make a difference between life and death. Well, yeah. But when you're on that side of it and you've worked so hard to get there and fought so hard for it, it's, it's the last thing you wanted to say at that point in time. So does that seem like a strange word to you? Weakness on that? Cause it's really not weakness. It's not. Um, I got called out on that on a podcast before. I, I, I used that word, and, and I shouldn't. And it was Mike Glover, actually, at the time that said it to me. And Mike was like, but is it? And I was like, no, you're right. That's not the right word, and I still do it. Um, yeah, uh, vulnerability is a better word. I, I, I agree. But I, I know so many guys. I, I work with a guy that it was time for maybe him to step away from doing being out in the the field and doing, you know, we've talked about what I do offline, but it was time for him to kind of step away and maybe do more paperwork centric or whatever. And he told me straight up, I can't do that, man. Do you know what these yeah. people will think of me? And I, I said, who gives a shit what they think of you? You've got to take care of you, man. I understand the way you feel, but at some point, don't you agree? You've got to take care of yourself. Yeah. Well, and I even had an example, um, you know, Brad and Brad's talked about this, you know, that after that rotation, um, Brad decided he was going to step away. Uh, and he wanted to go to, to CDD to combat development and, and, you know, work on equipment development for, for the unit. Uh, and Brad was pretty candid about it. Like he was cool. Like he was like, you know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, like basically, you know, I'm tired and, and he was having some family issues too. And, and that was his effort. Um, and I commend him for it. I've always thought that like how big that was of him. Um, the difference was with Brad was like, Brad was, Brad was my big brother, man. Like he, he was a Somalia vet as a ranger. Like he had, he had already done it back then more than enough, more than whatever be asked of someone. And he stayed in and he continued and spent time in RRD and then ended up in the unit and then did, a whole bunch of deployments to the unit. So he didn't owe anything to anybody. So there wasn't not a single one of us. Like when he said it, I was disappointed that he left because 
I always wanted him to be the team sergeant and me to be his two IC because we were, we were cool like that. Um, and that was like the dream job with your, with the dude that you really enjoy being with. Um, so I was bummed, but, but yeah, I even had an example of a guy stepping up and saying, I'm good and I'm done and I'm going to go take a break. Um, and I, I didn't, but I didn't say that to the team. I just said, I wanted to go get my MOS and, uh, make sure I was at least a green beret. And everybody understood it because a lot of guys had done it in the past and they appreciated the fact that I was trying to do it, even though I was going to miss a deployment, I was trying to do it in between as best I could. Um, and then, yeah, what, that's what happened. So I went to the Q course, um, and now this is 2005. So we transitioned in 2005. Um, and while I'm in the Q course, so I made a choice to go do this. Uh, a new guy showed up to the team and replaced me, a guy named Steve Langmack. Um, and they made team, Steve the uh, team breacher, which I had done for the last three and a half years. Um, and Steve ended up dying on target um, early in that rotation as a brand new guy on F team. Um, he was putting a charge on a door. Uh, you know, inexperienced guy, bad situation. It could be whatever, whatever number of circumstances. Um, but yeah, he took machine gun fire through the door and it killed him. Um, and then shortly after that, uh, Mike McNulty and Bob Horgan were killed on a follow on target. Um, and Mike was one of my best friends and Bob was a unit legend that everybody looked up to that had been in a couple different squadrons. Um, and so in the middle of, uh, the MOS portion of the Q course, I got pulled out of the field, um, because they had seen that, uh, a couple of USOC guys had been killed in action and, you know, Green Berets being Green Berets, they knew that the paper didn't say USOC guys, unless it was guys from the special mission unit. Otherwise it would have said special forces command or whatever. Um, and so they wanted to see if I knew them. Uh, and they actually let me go make some phone calls. And of course I made one phone call back to the unit and found out it was Mike and Bob. Um, and that was <clears throat> not being there. Uh, I I've said this for years. I didn't know what survivor's remorse was. Um, but that I had all kinds of crap from that, that started at that point. Um, Steve Dyan, you know, it was the, it should have been me. It could have been me. You know, it's a brand new guy. If it was me, nobody would have got hurt. Like all that crazy stuff that goes through your head. Like, I didn't even know this guy. Like I felt awful that he, he technically was a teammate that I could have and should have and would have served with. Um, but he died so fast that I, I never worked a day with him. Um, but did you put that on you? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Steve's, even though I didn't know the guy, I carried that for a long time. Um, and then Mike, uh, you know, Mike was just my best friend and I just, you know, you, when you operate at that level, I think anytime anything happens to anybody and you could have been there, should have been there, would have been there, whatever. I, I think you, you take a little bit of that on that. Maybe if I'd have been there, it wouldn't have gone that way. You know, good buddy of mine, Lee Busby, you know, Lee's talked about it on podcasts before, you know, he's, he had some things happen and then, you know, he lost a teammate. Um, when he wasn't there and he was the team sergeant of that team and he, he missed it for very legitimate reasons and for making the right choices. But, um, you know, we still talk about that. He still carries that around that if I'd have been there, it wouldn't have happened. Uh, and I think everybody does that, but, but yeah, so the fortunate side of that was I was home. Um, and the Q course actually cut me away 
to go be a part of, of Barry and Mike and Bob. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and then I finished out the Q course, um, the same rotation. So all of that happened. Uh, my whole team got shot up, um, basically. So Brad had stepped away. Uh, Chili had actually moved. Mikey was a team sergeant and, uh, and Mikey got all shot up along with a bunch of other guys in the troop. Um, kind of in that same time frame. So the squadron came home battered, bruised, and down a few dudes. Um, and yeah, here I am graduating the Q course. Uh, and I got to go back to the ashes of what used to be this team that I'd been with forever. Um, and that was, I mean, you, <laughs> you can see it and hear it and feel it now. I mean, that was that many years ago. And I still... I, I, and I don't have any problems with it, but I still get emotional thinking about all of the things that go with that, even though I'm a hundred percent good with them all now and I don't carry around any guilt or anything like that. Like I, I still feel all that. Like it was yesterday. Um, you say you don't carry any of the guilt, but how long did it take before you didn't carry any of that guilt? I mean, we're uh, well, way removed now. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it was, it was probably 2012, 13, 14 before I started to understand and let some of those things go before I understood that I had survivor's guilt as it related to Steve, um, the loss of my best friend and the isolation that I started within myself and shutting people out and not getting to know teammates and all that stuff. Um, that was really like the big turning point for me was that year. And it's, it's interesting now looking back because you know, it happens to a lot of guys in combat during a rotation. And I certainly had enough of those. And I had enough incidents where I was there and things happened. Um, you know, whether you call them traumatic experiences or whatever, like enough shit happened in 11 rotations that I, I should be damaged more from that stuff. Um, but honestly, that rotation that I missed, and it was the worst rotation our squadron ever had. Um, in terms of injuries, it was, it was the worst rotation B squadron ever had that same year. Um, you know, another friend and a whole vehicle full of dudes got blown up in an ID and, you know, I got, I had a couple of friends maimed and, and we lost a couple of buddies and like, it was just a catastrophic year. And that for me is, was the most significant of my life because we got crushed and the battlefield was at a point where these things were happening and our op tempo wasn't changing. And, you know, when you're getting in a gunfight every day or every other day, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time, no matter how good you are, like shit happens. Um, and you know, that year was definitely a, that Oh four Oh five. And then going into my next rotation, you know, we knew it was the wild west and, and things were getting ugly. So who are you falling back to on this? You understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I nobody. Um, and frankly, I didn't, uh, I didn't know how to deal with it. Like I hadn't, again, like when, when the guys that have been injured and, you know, Andy getting killed and stuff that had happened prior to that, you know, we didn't have time. We didn't have time to grieve. Um, we didn't have time to process that. Um, and I don't think that you could, like, I don't think that there's some system that could be put in place for us all to feel better. Like we had a job to do. So, you know, at the end of the day, we did what we had to do, which is we put it away and we focused on the, on the mission. Um, but yeah, I didn't have anybody to, to share that with. I didn't really share that with anybody. Um, when I can't, you know, going to those funerals and things like I didn't feel like my wife understood, uh, or my family understood how I felt and I wasn't comfortable talking about it. Like I, like I can say survivor's remorse now, 
at the time I wasn't comfortable talking about the fact that Steve died. Like I didn't want to talk about it at all because I felt like if I'd have been there, that wouldn't have happened. Like Steve wouldn't be dead. Like it either would have been me or it wouldn't have happened. Um, and that sucked. Like with, you know, th- like you said earlier, like it's a community that's this small, like there's 300 of us. Um, so it, each and every one of those is so incredibly significant that, yeah, I, I carried that around for a long time. I, I guess I'm kind of jumping ahead and we'll catch up to it in a minute. But after talking to you and how you speak about your wife, to hear you say that you didn't want to talk to your wife about it, to say she wouldn't understand, she might not understand, but she's right there. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, by that point, too, we we had other things. I had other things going on relationship-wise. Like I said, that gap between, you know, being happy to be home and ready to leave again got smaller and smaller. Um, and you know, it's a lot of things that get discussed regularly these days is when, when you're a service member and you deploy, you know, that other side of the equation, your spouse, your significant other that's taking care of those kids, life runs a certain way. And when you come back, even though they're happy to have you back, you're a disruption. Like you are changing the dynamic and the way everything in the household happens. Um, so there's impacts on both sides. Like it's not anyone's fault. Like you're both sides are dealing with things and like I said, we know that now and there's a lot of information related to that now and they're trying to do things to help that. But um, yeah, that's where I was. I was in the middle of that vicious cycle. Um, I cared about my kids uh, and, you know, they were my focus and my my ex-wife was or my wife at the time was um, just ready for me to take care of the kids. So it sort of stopped that connection between you and your spouse. And I just focused all of my energy on the kids when I was home and then, you know, I got ready and I deployed again. So what are we up to now? Six deployments, seven deployments in now? Something like that. Yeah. 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 So we went back. I went back in, uh, in 06. Um, completely different team. We had kind of rebuilt a team from the ashes. So we had a bunch of new guys. Well, that's got to feel um, weird right off the bat. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was just very impersonal. Great dudes. Um, you know, a couple of them I'm still friends with today, but. But like I said before, like I stopped letting people in after that, um, you know, losing Mike for me was tough uh, because he was a regular army guy like me. Like, even though I started out in regiment, I was a regular army guy when I went into the unit. And so was Mike. He was coming out of 25th ID in Hawaii. And and so, you know, like we had some things in common. He was a family man, had four kids. I just had a connection with him. And um, so, yeah, after that, it kind of, kind of got hard to let dudes in. And then we kept losing people and having people get injured and you, and you kind of get scared. So that, def- that defensive wall goes up. Um, but yeah, I went back in 06. Um, and, uh, again, some more piled on stuff. Um, looking back, you know, it was a good rotation. We did a bunch of stuff. Um, I started out in, in Ramadi in the first half of that rotation and, we were developing some targets. So we were doing some close target reconnaissance and some other things. Um, and me and uh, my team leader, Jesse had been out, um, several times. Um, but we also knew we were being watched. Um, and so at the time we made some recommendations to the chain of command that, Hey, you know, we need to change this up. We need to do something different. Um, but because things had slowed down, they were a bit hungry to kind of find the next target. Um, and you know, Jesse kind of stepped up and said, we're not, we're not going to do that again because it doesn't make sense. Um, 
and they pressed the issue and they ended up sending a couple guys out. Jesse said, we're not going, um, which sounds wild to people, but you know, we'd been at war for a long, a long time. And, you know, that's an organization where NCOs technically make the decisions. Um, and the officers are kind of part-time participants. They kind of come and go. Um, but it's, it's definitely a team leader driven organization. And, uh, and yes, yeah, so we didn't go out. They sent some guys out and one of them happened to be a new guy. Um, and, uh, he ended up getting ambushed, um, on that trip and, and we lost Lance Cornette. Uh, and that was another one. Um, we changed mission and flew to Balad like right after that, uh, and started doing something completely different, started doing vehicle interdiction stuff and a bunch of other things, uh, bouncing between Baghdad and Balad, but we didn't, we didn't have time to process. Um, and that one was another one that hit me hard because I watched, uh, and listened to a leader make recommendations based on his experience as a senior non-commissioned officer and a guy that had been at war for a long time. And, and I had too, um, and we'd yeah. done a lot of work. Um, and I watched a guy, you know, lose his life for a situation that I felt like could have been prevented. Um, and hindsight's easy, right? Like, so I'm not, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not saying people's decisions got Lance killed. I'm saying people made decisions and, and they weren't the right ones, but that, you know, that's what happens in war, right? Um, it doesn't always go the way you want it to. So yeah, when we lost Lance, um, I was angry and angry was a different emotion in that scenario. Um, I was angry after Mike was killed, but I was angry at the bad guys. Uh, when Lance was killed, I was kind of angry at us. Um, uh, but yeah, you stick it in the box with the rest of the shit and, and put it away and you drive on to the next objective because that's what we did and we didn't have time to do anything else. Do you still love it or do you like it? Um, so that 05, 06 year, <laughs> I told Mikey this in Vegas this year. And he doesn't ever remember saying it to me. So we had a good laugh at that, but I've been telling it for years. Mike Hefner said to me years ago, we were in the middle of a training event. This is prior to that. And I was shit eating grin, you know, happy, so excited. And I actually said to him, it was just me and him walking down the street in Atlanta. And I said, uh, man, this is amazing. You know, like a young kid would. And he was like, what? And I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe they pay us to do this. And Mike said, enjoy it while you can. And I said, why would you say that? And he said, because one day you'll wake up and it'll just be a job. Uh, and that 05, 06 year, that was when I woke up and it was just a job. Um, it was also the year that I realized I'm really good at this. Like, like I, I, was, I was put on this earth to be in this place in time and do these things. And I think that added another level of compartmentalize the garbage. Um, because I felt like not everybody can do this. Like, I'm so lucky to be here. I'm so lucky that God gave me the skills or the talent or the intelligence or whatever to be here in this time and place and that my life events have led me to this organization and allow me to do these things. Um, so I knew I was good at it, but at the same time, yeah, it was just a job. <laughs> it, just saying that sounds so much mirror opposites of each other. It's just a job, but I know I was put here to do this and nothing else. But it's yeah. just a job. It, it, and it gets kind of comical as the years go by. Because like now, like that, that one of the things that I say all the time is 
like what you do is just what you do at that particular point in time. It doesn't define you as a person, like the things that make you great, your skills, your attributes, your intelligence, your drive, your passion, like those things are what made you successful at whatever that thing was. And that's the same collection of stuff and attitudes and traits that is going to make you successful at whatever else you choose to do. Um, so I say that to people all the time because guys get stuck in, I'm not an operator anymore. I don't get to do this anymore. I don't get to do that. And they get in that vicious cycle of chasing it instead of going, you know what? I got there because I'm special and that's fucking cool. And I can use that stuff and do whatever I want. Um, and it was way harder than anything you're ever going to do in your life. And it was way more mentally challenging than you're going to do in your life. And it's okay to be sad. Uh, it's okay to be damaged, but, but you also got to pick yourself up. You got to figure out how to heal and get better. And you got to focus those energies on whatever the next thing is and be great at that. So I want to kind of fast forward. You're at this point, you're not really doing team stuff. You're doing onesies and twosies thing. You're breaking off and doing kind of a different mission set. Correct. Yeah, we did a couple more. I, well, I did that rotation in 06, uh, came back, and then, yeah, I ended up um, doing some some singleton and some small unit stuff um, more on the clandestine side. And, and, uh, and, yeah, I ended up doing a couple rotations in the Horn of Africa. Um, so that was in 07 was when General Crystal really spread out um, JSOC forces. Uh, and we focused on fighting a network with a network. So we put dudes all over the planet and I just happened to be the first um, guy from the army side to end up in the Horn of Africa. Are you starting to see though, looking at it, you're going, shit, there's bad guys everywhere. Like yeah. this is a never ending supply of bad guys. Yeah, it was. Um, the cool part about going to Africa was, you know, a huge portion of the foreign fighter both training network and supply network was coming out of Africa. And, and by this time we were aware of that. And so, um, you know, long story short, I got to be a part of that initial push into to develop the target set in the Horn of Africa to disrupt that terror training network and that pipeline of recruits that eventually end up in the Middle East and, and, and Afghanistan. And so I, I want to move forward so that we can really get into the after of this. I, I want to talk about the last deployment. Um, yep. We're already, you know, you, you are doing the same stuff pretty much until the end from like deployment eight, nine, up until the 11th. You're pretty much doing the same kind of job. Yep. Um, we talked earlier today and I asked you about talking about you always say that there was a mistake made. You stepped away. Um, and, and I want you to kind of take this one on your own and I, I want you to explain the situation, what you're at in life, where your mind state is, and then kind of how you feel stepping away from it. Yeah. So by this point in time, I was, um, divorced, uh, or, or I was separated and nearly divorced. That's a whole nother story, but, uh, we'll save that taking, one for the next one. Ended up taking two years instead of what was supposed to be one. And, but anyway, um, so yeah, so I'm, um, I'm not doing great at this point in life. Uh, I'm in an apartment when I'm home stateside, I'm in an apartment down the street, uh, from my house that I bought and paid for and pay for and 
that way I could be close to my kids so that when I was home, it was very easy for me to like get them to school or pick them up from school. Or, you know, I was basically split in time 50% with my, my ex-wife. Um, I was physically, um, not in the best shape. Um, you know, I had a number of injuries over the years, but in 2007, the year, the first year I did the Horn of Africa rotation, um, right after the end of that year, I ended up having, um, neck surgery. I had C5, C6 disc replacement, um, in 2007. Um, and that was just from all the things that we did wearing a helmet and night vision, as much as we did all the jumping, all the flying, all the driving, um, my neck just broke down. Um, and I was having some bunch of pain in a bunch of areas. Um, and I was given a lot of pain pills. Um, I was given a lot of pain pills leading up to that surgery and I was given a lot of pain pills after that surgery. So the 08 rotation, I, deployed, uh, like 30 days after my neck surgery, um, which is unheard of and no, that's not normal. Uh, I, I basically begged for that from, from the doc that did my surgery. And I promised him that I wasn't going to be in a helmet and nods much. <laughs> and, uh, and he let me do it. Um, and he wanted to document my progress and he wanted me to keep notes on like working out and stuff like that. As, as I came back from it, he was proud of his work. So he let me get away with it. Um, but they, you know, that was a point in time in the army where they gave a lot of prescription pain pills to you. Um, and so I deployed for basically a three and a half, four month rotation with enough muscle relaxers and painkillers and sleeping pills, um, to last me. Uh, and so when you are on prescription pain meds for that length of time, um, you don't even realize that you're just taking them to take them. You're taking them because you don't feel normal. It has nothing to do with pain, pain management or, or muscles at that point. Um, it's just that you wake up and you don't feel normal until you take them. Um, so I didn't even know at the time that I was addicted to pain pills, but that's where I was in that cycle. So home life's falling apart. Uh, I'm drinking a lot more, I'm carrying around a lot of baggage. That little box that I've been shoving everything in my brain is you know, spilling over at the seams back there and the littlest thing pushes that box over and all that stuff spills out and it spills out in anger and frustration and, uh, you know, not healthy habits. Um, so yeah. Uh, so I, I end up on my last deployment, um, uh, kind of in the middle of that cycle. Um, I was good when I was deployed. That's the weird part is yeah, I was taking pain pills and stuff. Um, so technically I was high. Um, but I was good at what I did, uh, and I had made a reputation for myself in the horn. So I had the respect of my peers. I had the respect of the interagency community. Um, but I went back there with a, a different teammate, um, that, you know, we had butted heads quite a bit and it's difficult. It was difficult for him when you are put in a situation where you're the superior, um, but your subordinate is given more respect and everyone cares about their opinion more than yours. That's a challenging environment. Um, and he was dealing with his own demons. Um, we were both pretty, pretty messed up mentally. Um, so it caused some friction between us. And in the midst of that friction, I had an inappropriate relationship. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, you fill the void when you're struggling mentally, you fill the void with violence, you fill the void with adrenaline, you fill the void with alcohol, you fill it with women, you fill it with whatever, whatever gives you that rush or that up and down of emotions, hell you self-sabotage and create fights 
um, just because you want to feel something. Because at this point in my life, I'm just so numb. Um, one, from all the things that I've been through and two, from all the drugs I was taking um, that you you tend to create drama. So, I, yeah, I had a I had a relationship with a girl that that um, was married and I didn't know it. Uh, I made a mistake. It was stupid. And um, because I had all that friction with the teammate, because we were both having our own struggles, uh, he sent an email home and and basically said that. Um, and then one thing led to another. He asked me to stop doing it. Uh, and then, uh, you know, she and I still had some communications for whatever reason. Um, but I was respecting his wishes, but the ship had already sailed. Um, so basically they said, you know, I had disobeyed a direct order um, and I had inappropriate relationship. So um, when I came home, I was asked to leave the unit. I was told I was going to leave the unit and asked to leave the unit. That was a fairly common thing. I had lots of friends that had left the unit and come back. Um, got, at the end of the day, people make mistakes. They've spent too much money, time and training on you to just that be the end of it and write you off. So other than a safety issue, like a guy having an accidental discharge or something, you know, just generally being unsafe. If you had a personal issue or something, or you made a mistake or, you know, you got a, I don't know, you got in a fight or got arrested or something like that. You know, most guys, they tell you take a year off and come back. And I'd seen it happen many a times, even with teammates um, and guys that I look up to. So, uh, but to me at that point in my career, which is also one of the lowest points of my life, it was like the nail in the coffin. Um, taking away <clears throat> everything that you fought so hard to be and be a part of, and then working as hard and giving as much of myself to it for as many years as I did um, for something stupid like like a relationship or you know one night with somebody. Um, yeah, that was tough. Um, so yeah, so I ended up leaving the unit. Uh, I left the unit. I went to, I had to pick a job. Um, can I ask you a question real quick before we get into that job? Because I want to go back to the very first one we talked about, and I asked you about being smarter, faster, all those kind of things. And you said the stuff that weighed on your mind was mistakes that, you know, you could have changed the outcome on. And yeah. it almost seems to have come full circle now. You're at the end, the last deployment, you're in the twilight of your career. And one of those things that I won't say hampered you in the beginning, but definitely ate away at you has happened again. Yep. And so are you better at dealing with it? No. Okay. Actually, it almost took me back to that. Um, I think, I think I felt like, Yep. They had it right in the first place. Like, uh, I should have never done any of that stuff. I was just lucky um, that I like it literally mentally then like, I can honestly say that like, I, I felt like I never deserved to be there. Um, that I had had all that time and all that training and all those things that I'd done. And I screwed it up. Like, it was uh, it, it was an awful existence. Okay. Uh, but yeah, and you really don't have any control over it. Like your brain, uh, I think I was so deep in the cycle of all those other things that my brain kind of only knew extremes at that point. So I was like either dead, stone cold, numb, or I was pinging, you know, in whatever direction that was. Um, and so, yeah, so it felt like a banishment. Um, so I left kind of like with my tail between my legs, um, 
you know, I knew I could come back, but I, I mentally, I felt like there's no way I was ever going to do that. Um, and so, yeah, I ended up, it's a, it's a long story and I don't want to belabor it, but you know, I went to the Q course or graduated the Q course, but they didn't actually award me the MOS back then. And that was some drama. Um, so I was still technically an 11 Bravo, even though I was a Q course graduate. Um, so I ended up spending like nine, 10 months as the, the 82nd Lurs first sergeant or in the ladies, 82nd Lurs. I actually, they had a guy that was the acting first sergeant and I, even though I outranked him, I was like, you just stay first sergeant. I'll just like help with like training and other stuff. <laughs> so I don't know how I got away with it, but, but I did. Um, and yeah, that, that was, um, so yeah, we're 2010. Um, and that was, that was pretty much rock bottom. Like I put on a face at work, uh, but I kind of could do whatever I want. I mean, those guys, like they thought I was, you know, I mean, I was a Delta operator that showed up in their company and like, what do they do with that? Like I've, I've been at war for the last decade. Like what, what, it was just such a bizarre situation. So they let me alone. Like I, I, I ran jumps and stuff for them and you know, we could get 47. So I, I was like the only me and one other dude were the only two jump masters, halo jump masters they had. So, you know, I could fake it at work and then I got off work and I'd, you know, drink a lot. And, uh, but anyway, long story short, I was dating a girl for a little while in there post divorce and, um, and, uh, yeah, and stuff got pretty bad. Um, and I, you know, was pretty close to taking my own life. Um, close enough that I had a gun in my mouth on the end of the bed. Can we, uh, can we talk about what led into that? Because I, I think that you're glossing over that very quickly. And I, I, I really think that this is though, this is where your story starts to change. Yeah, no, I did. Um, yeah, like I said, I had a million and one emotions going on. Um, I, the overwhelming feeling that I had at the time was that I, I just wanted to go away. Like I wasn't worth anything. I felt like, um, none of the things that I had done had mattered. Like I, like I screwed up all of that. Uh, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. It was this huge collection of things. So even though I was working in a place at the time where everyone thought I was a God and they all looked up to me and I could have said anything and they would have literally worshiped the words coming out of my mouth. Yeah. Like I, you know, I was going home at night and I was a disaster. Um, and so, yeah, so that almost happened. Um, and then that led to, you know, basically that next day is the first time, um, with the help of, you know, the girl that I was dating and some convincing, that was the first time that I reached out to somebody. Um, and I called the guy that was the use of sock psychologist at the time or psychiatrist. Um, I don't know which one's which still to this day, but anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, he was a guy that I knew and I, I said, look, I'm struggling. Can I come see you? Like, I don't know what to do with myself. And I, I almost took my own life. Um, and yeah, so he immediately, he was like, yep, come here, this building, come find me now. Um, and that started about a month or six week process where he did a bunch of evaluations. I saw some other people. I had some tests done again. I couldn't have brain scans because of the shrapnel. So I couldn't have MRIs. Um, but they did a bunch of cognitive testing. They did a whole bunch of stuff and I had kicked the pills at this point weirdly. So I was still drinking and I was having aggression issues and getting in fights, but I, but I had kicked the pills because 
a short time before that, I realized I had a dependency issue, had gotten off of those. In hindsight, I look back at that. It's probably also a contributing factor to me hitting rock bottom was I didn't have that supplement anymore that was taking that edge off. Um, and so, yeah. Do you so think that there process- was one thing on that rock bottom? Do you think that there was one thing that pushed you over the edge or was it, like you said, the multitude of things? Nah, I mean that <laughs> so many things at once. I mean, that was a time in my okay. life where I was having I was having blackouts, um, and and I remember that morning very clearly. It was a morning. I woke up, and I didn't remember like how I got home, where I was. Um, I I didn't remember anything, and I remember this feeling, this overwhelming feeling of shame. And it when you feel like, oh my god, like what did I do? Like it weighs a million pounds and you have absolutely no idea. And even though no one's with me and it's the isolation, the feeling alone and the feeling of shame. Like I didn't want anyone to talk to me or call me. I didn't want to message anyone. I didn't want anything because I felt so shameful because I didn't know what was going on. Um, and I just wanted that feeling to go away. Uh, but, but yeah, so anyway, they, um, he ends up, uh, and I've told this before, but he ends up getting me a diagnosis after a bunch of visits and seeing different docs and doing different things and cognitive testing. Um, I get diagnosed with traumatic brain injury um, and post-traumatic stress, or they've called it post-traumatic stress disorder back then, um, which I hate that term. Um, so I, I, I like to propagate post-traumatic stress these days because it's not a disorder. It's something that you can recover from and deal with. Um, but yeah, both of those things along with a myriad of other stuff, um, like severe depression. Um, I was an insomniac. I hadn't slept. I didn't really sleep right for five years. I didn't start sleeping right till 2015 when I retired. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that started the path. Um, and, and they put me on a head drug and I took, uh, a mental health drug, a mind altering drug. Um, that's fairly common and fairly often prescribed in, in the world still to this day. Um, and he asked me after a few weeks of taking it, how I felt. And I said, I feel great. Yeah, good. Like most of them, they work, they take the edge off, they mellow out the highs and, and reduce the lows. And, and yes, absolutely. I felt better. Um, and I went back to renew my prescription after 30 days and they quadrupled my dose, um, on, on accident. And so a couple of days after taking quadruple the minimum dose that I was on, uh, yeah, I had another like, like postal event, um, where I wasn't really thinking about myself, but I think I was thinking about hurting other people. Um, and my girlfriend at the time said, I don't know what's wrong with you, but you need to call the doctor because you were doing so great and you were making all these strides. Um, and your swings weren't as bad. And now like you were off the charts. Uh, I think I broke some things in the house. Like I've just, it was awful, um, and scary, uh, for me and for her, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, I called him back, said something's wrong on a hunch. He said, read me the label of your medication. And I did. And he caught the air when I read the milligrams to him. Um, and then they had to wean me off of those pills. Um, so you, you can't just stop cold Turkey. So I had to slowly come down off of that over the next few weeks. Um, and from that point forward, I wrote pills off and I said, you know what, I'm going to do this my way. Um, and I'm going to do it the right way. And I'm going to figure out how to get better without having to medicate. Um, so I think the combination of prescription pills and getting addicted to those because it's something that happened to me and some injuries and illnesses and, 
whatever. Um, and then, and then trying a head drug to help depression and anxiety and all the other things that I had. And then that going horribly wrong. Uh, yeah, I was pretty scarred <laughs> at that point. Um, but I, was, <laughs> I think but you're I was using that well, term loosely too. I was pretty well traveled at that point. So I was like, you know what, I, I'll, I'll figure this out. Um, and then, yeah, so about, about, you know, that relationship didn't work out. Um, it was too rough a place. It was too much a strain. Um, you know, God bless her, but, but I just wasn't ready. Um, and then, you know, a few miracle things happen like in a row. So getting help led to getting better, getting better led to better conversations with the people around me. Those better conversations led to me getting my MOS issue worked out, um, by God bless him. General John Mulholland at USASOC fixed that for me. And, uh, the next day I moved over to, um, USASOC, uh, and, and the USASOC Sergeant Major at the time asked me what I wanted to do. And he wanted me to deploy to Pakistan, Pakistan and stand up a task force. And I, I told him flat out, um, again, I'd been through a lot and I was pretty well traveled. And I told him flat out, I can't do it. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I just went through a divorce. I just went through all this shit. Like I, I just physically can't do it right now. Um, and he said, well, you got 24 hours to find something else and tell me what it is. Um, so I made some phone calls and, and I ended up in the G8. I ended up in force modernization doing equipment development and acquisition, um, which we ended up getting moved to SF command. But, um, but yeah, so those next few years we built out that shop. Um, and I was fortunate to be able to help surround myself with a bunch of really seasoned, uh, other E8s, other master sergeants, um, guys with their own issues, but we had this little collection of misfits, um, that really cared about the guys and were really passionate about what we were doing, but we were also all dealing with our shit. So we really took care of each other. Um, it was a good group that communicated. Um, and that job led me to meeting my wife, um, that I'm married to now. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And she was a godsend. Um, when you meet somebody and you, you're basically just through the lowest point of your life, uh, and they see th through that stuff, that vulnerability and, and those issues. Um, and so I met the right person at the right time. So as I was learning how to talk about that stuff and work through it, I met somebody that was receptive and willing to listen. Um, and that was huge. So I had this combination in my last five years of the service of, I found a woman that listened to me, respected me, loved me and appreciated me for who I was right then. Not what I used to do. She knew nothing of that. Um, I just, I was just this damaged, vulnerable dude that, that was learning how to talk through that stuff. And, and she loved me. Um, and then I had a group of guys that I work with that had their own issues. Um, and we were there for each other. We were our own little support network. We were our own little therapy group and it wasn't always healthy. Sometimes that was bad too. Uh, but, <laughs> but I was, I was really fortunate um, to be in that situation. And, you know, there were times in that I've told people before there were times during that stretch where I would pull in the parking lot and I physically couldn't get out of the car and go into work. Now you think about that, a green beret, I drove to work and I just went, Nope, I'm not going. And I had guys that I worked for that I would call them and go, I can't do it, man. I, like I gotta go home and they would go, go take care of you. Like that's rare. Um, and I was really lucky. And it's one of the things that I've carried with me. Like, like I try to be that person for people when I can, because I was lucky enough to have people do it for me. But my, the big thing that you just said there, and I, it's so crazy when I talk to you, the things that you gloss over so quickly, it, it <laughs> seems like the most important aspects though, before when you were in Delta, before when you did other stuff, 
you wouldn't have had the courage to go, I can't do it, man. I got to back away. Like, no. that's a huge stride. And I think that when you gloss over it and you go, yeah, I, I just told him I couldn't do it. That's a huge step. Yeah, those, those honestly, like the collection of failures and setbacks that I had through my life are what gave me the strength to get through that. So when I really needed it, when I, when I was at rock bottom and I really needed something to pull me out of it, all those times that I've been kicking the balls on the way there and had to figure out how to get over that, they were all preparing me for that moment. And that's why now, like I still have depressive events to this day. I share that with people. I have times when I don't want to talk to anybody and I'm, and I'm miserable. And sometimes I, you know, can be an uncomfortable person to be around. And, but where I am now is, you know, I might do it and then I might go, an hour later, I might go, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm grouchy right now. I'm just not having a good day. Like I acknowledge it and I see it. I didn't have the courage to do that before. I didn't have the wherewithal to do that before. And I also didn't understand what it felt like. I know exactly what depression feels like when it creeps in on me now. I know exactly what all those things look like, smell like, taste like, and feel like when they're coming. Um, and so because I'm able to identify it and because I've gotten smarter and educated myself and learned from my experiences, now I can do things to mitigate the the dramatic effects of that. And I can do it without drugs and I can do it without alcohol. Um, you know, I can do it in healthy ways and I can catch it early enough that it doesn't get bad. How liberating is that? Uh, a lot. Yeah, very. I mean, one of the reasons, like I said, like I started talking, um, a guy asked me to do a podcast several years ago, Mike Glover, Phil Craft Survival. And Mike and I didn't even know each other. We'd been in the same place at the same time a couple of times, but we, we, we weren't buddies or anything. Um, we had a lot of mutual friends and he asked me to come up and do the podcast. And I did that podcast and I forgot that people were going to listen to us having this conversation. <laughs> and I, and I got really emotional and I said a bunch of stuff that I had never said, particularly not in order like that. Um, and after I did it and then it went out, I started getting all these messages and all these calls from all these people. I mean, from all over, all over the world, cops, military folks, all these people going, you know, whatever their little piece of it was, I felt just like that. Or I can't believe you said that, or I know exactly what you meant. And this was so helpful. And I was like, my God, this is overwhelming. And I don't know if I can handle it. But then as time went by and I processed that, I was like, okay, I can do this. And, and then as I did it more and I did it more, and then I spoke publicly a couple of times, um, at some, at some big events, uh, and then had guys come up to me and talk to me after that. Um, where I got to was a point of this actually helped me. It helped me even further identify my own issues. It felt good to help other people, but I also had to really had to have the, I had to be honest with myself and go, look, I can't take on all of your stuff. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not trained to deal with people's issues. So, but what I can do is I can tell you what I've been through. I can tell you the things that I've done to deal with it, how I felt. I can make you feel like it's, you're not alone. I can help you to see that it's not weakness and that you should have no issue talking about your stuff. Um, I say to guys all the time, like you earn your man card, man. If you were a cop for fucking 20 years, you, the amount of baggage that you're carrying around is massive. You have earned your keep and it is okay to have some issues because of that. And it's okay to talk about those. Um, and so, yeah, it's gotten easier as it goes on. So like when you say I gloss over it, I don't mean to. So if it comes across that way, I'm sorry. Um, it's just that I've talked about a lot of them. Or I've talked about it 
a lot of times. And sometimes I forget that I need to reemphasize that because it might be important to somebody. So I'm, I'm glad you pointed it out. Well, let's take another step of that. You had a recent health scare uh, and you stepped away from a job that you had. I sure did. You would have never done that before. So leaps and bounds once again of something you would never step away. You knew, all right, maybe it's time before something bad really happens. Because I think that the older you get and the more you and I talk and stuff, you're learning just how precious that time is, that you're not getting it back. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I um, so... Yeah, I, I when I retired in, in 2015, um, you know, a couple of cool things happened. Um, my wife and I dove into the outdoors. We hiked John Muir Trail together, spent three weeks in the mountains. Uh, that hike unlocked a lot of things for me mentally. It literally reset my circadian rhythm um, and my insomnia stopped. So after a uh, little over five years worth of sleeping an hour or two a night and struggling with that until it caught up and then I would sleep a bunch. Um, because I refused to take any sleep aids or anything like that. Uh, yeah, corrected my sleep issue. I started some healthy cycles, um, in terms of getting up in the morning, going to the gym, you know, eating three squares a day, like just trying to eat healthy. Uh, you know, like I said, I still have a drink. There's some unhealthy things that I do, but for the most part, I live a pretty healthy lifestyle and we spend a lot of time in the outdoors and we make that a part of our lifestyle. So we do that on the regular. I do several big hikes a year. Um, with her, we do some big climbs occasionally, some bigger mountain stuff. Um, but it is a regular part of our routine is, you know, the gym working out and spending time in the back country, whether it's, it's, you know, some Alpine mountaineering or, or just long distance backpacking. But, um, and then I, I got lucky again, you know, I, the job doing force modernization, doing acquisition, I met a lot of people throughout the defense industry. I worked with a lot of different companies. Um, and yeah, I, I, um, you know, I ended up going to work for tier tactical, uh, and in a very short period of time, you know, Jason asked me to be his chief operating officer. And, and that's sort of what I did for the last seven years, um, was I was fortunate enough to be a part of a, of a great company that was growing, doing a lot of things for a lot of great organizations around the world. I got to continue to help the community, um, build and design new stuff. I really, really enjoyed it. We built a team of folks that was amazing. Um, and I got to work with a lot of guys that, you know, had similar backgrounds. So it filled a lot of voids for me. Um, you know, growth is, growth is stressful and we were, you know, we were a fairly big company and moved really fast. And, uh, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to things like that, there's an inherent amount of stress that you put on yourself that, that again, cause I hadn't really been through it on this side. Um, I didn't fully understand all of that. And then. Yeah, about uh, five months ago now, uh, I was having some blood pressure issues out of nowhere. Um, I assumed it was stress related, but I didn't know. Um, so I had my blood pressure checked uh, at, at work and the doc at work that we had told me to go to the emergency room immediately. And I said, no. <laughs> that doesn't I sound like you at all. I felt like that was ridiculous. Um, I see a cardiologist and have for seven years because of some hereditary uh, cholesterol issues. Um, so my grandfather, father and brother, uh, grandfather, father, both had heart attacks um, in their early 40s. My brother had open heart surgery at 46. So it's fairly common in the Van Zants. We just produced more cholesterol. So. so I'm wondering when this doctor said go to the emergency room, you thought, ah, that's ridiculous. 
Well, I'll tell you, my, so I take a stress test every two years, no issues. My EKGs are phenomenal. I've been on a Torvastatin for seven years since I retired. My last two blood tests before I retired were both my cholesterol was high. I went on the statin drug and stayed on it for the last seven years and my cholesterol levels were normal. They were fine. Um, they weren't low, but they weren't high. Um, so for all intents and purposes, even my cardiologist thought I was in perfect health. Um, but so this blood pressure thing happened. I went to the hospital. They ran some tests. I was fine. I made an appointment with my cardiologist and he said, just out of an abundance of caution, let's go do a cardiac CT. Um, and they did. And I had three major blockages. I had a 90% and two in the high 80s. Um, and with all the climbing and backcountry stuff and third world stuff that my wife and I do, I literally could have died on a mountain at any day. Um, so I was blessed and lucky, uh, one to know and understand my family history, uh, and to have a great cardiologist and, and then two to listen to my wife and go to the doctor and get checked out. Um, even though I thought it was nothing. Uh, and so, yeah, so I ended up having two heart procedures, had some stents put in, um, changed up my drug regimen. Um, and, but when all that happened, I said, this is a sign, um, I need to make a change and it's okay. I've, I've had a great career in the military and I got out and that wasn't the end of the world. And I had this phenomenal time spending seven years as a chief operating officer at a tactical body armor company. And I had a phenomenal time and they will continue to have good success, but I need to do something different. Uh, and I need to refocus my life a little bit and remember and remind myself again that I'm lucky to still be here as it is, but life's too short. So, yeah, so I reevaluated. I stepped away and, and um, I took about 30 days off and then uh, I started uh, I started my own consulting company. And mainly um, mainly because, one, I, I absolutely love and I'm passionate about continuing to touch the community. But two. I have a unique set of experiences having been on both sides of government acquisition, you know, the outside selling in and then the inside bringing in. Um, and then, you know, being an operator for a bunch of years, um, I, I feel like I have, you know, some knowledge and expertise and some understanding that can help, whether it's a small company that's trying to break into the defense business or whether it's somebody that develops something really cool and they just want to know how to get it out in front of everybody. Um, it gives me a chance to introduce products that are innovative and and things that definitely can help guys on the battlefield or save lives. And, uh, and I can do it in a fashion where I can control my workload. Um, I can really focus on my work-life balance and my health um, and make sure that I'm here for a lot of years to come to continue to help people. Can we talk a little bit about All Secure also? Because uh, Tom's been on the show before, his wife's been on the show. Um, but it's a it's an organization that is doing so many things and you and I talked about it. They only, they not only go and talk to young green berets about how they should maybe set up family life and the way they approach their, their career in the army, but they also focus on what you and I talked about the whole family. It's not just a soldier. It's not just the spouse. It's that secondary PTS that they talk about. And if you can just talk about, what you do with them, what you have done with them in the past and kind of what the goal is with them. Yeah. So Tom called me, um, obviously he, he's been a, he's been a leader and a mentor of mine for a good portion of my career. Um, he was one of my OTC instructors when I went to the unit, um, and a guy that I looked up to. And then after his instructor time, he came back to squadron. He was my troop sergeant major. Um, right after the invasion, he was my troop sergeant major for the Saddam rotation and some of the other ones after that. Um, 
And so we've been together a lot in, in training, in war, um, and we've kind of maintained some level of contact throughout our lives, you know, since then. Um, and so a few years back, he called me out of the blue. I hadn't talked to him in a while. And he said, I'm writing a book. And for a unit guy to say that, um, anybody that knows the community knows that's not a very common thing. Um, and frankly, it's been kind of taboo for a lot of years. Um, there's only been a couple of unit members that have written books. One of them was Charlie Beckwith, who, you know, formed the organization and has every right to write a book about it. Uh, and then another guy that was a, you know, an 80s, early 90s era operator. Um, and he didn't generate a lot of fans and a lot of people were really upset with him for doing it. Um, so it was a really, really courageous step. And I asked him, I was like, Tom, aren't you worried about this? Like, why are you writing a book? And he said, uh, because I think it's important for people to understand um, that you're going to go through things as a service member, that people that experience trauma and issues are going to go through things um, and they need examples of people that got through it to believe that they can. Um, and I want to write a book because I want to shed some light on some of those things and some of the things that I went through and I want to use it as a stepping stone to launch a charity that's going to support veterans and their families. Um, and that was, was a pretty cool moment. Like he kind of had me there because I thought that's really courageous. And I said, jokingly, I said, are you going to tell a bunch of war stories? <laughs> and he said a second really profound thing to me. He said, I'm going to tell a couple. And he said, because here's the thing you got to get people's attention. And he goes, nobody wants to read a book about a dude that kind of did some stuff and he has struggles. They got to believe in it. They got to, they got to see that strength. They got to hear those stories. They got to be vested in the person and then see all the things that happened afterwards. You know, you got to capture their attention. And I, I really appreciated his honesty and his candor in the situation. And so, um, so yeah, so he wrote the book um, and then him and Jen started all secure. And then, I followed that and kept track of that. And, and I said to him a few times, uh, you know, hey, you know, if you ever need anything, let me know. Like, I wouldn't mind getting involved. Uh, I don't know if I went that far, but I'd said a number of things like, if you ever need any help, you know, please let me know. And I really appreciated what they were doing. And I was kind of keeping tabs on it. And then a little bit of time went by and then I started talking. And I, I think I started talking you know, because I felt like it was okay, because I felt like if this guy, this leader and mentor that I looked up to for all these years is, is has the courage to expose his struggles, that, you know, it's all right, maybe, maybe I should too. Um, and so then I started to do it. And then, you know, that kind of led to us talking about those things even more. And then yeah, a little over a year ago, Tom and Jen came to me and said, you know, hey, would you be interested in joining the board. Um, we're changing some things up. We're going to do some things a little differently. The organization has evolved over the last few years. Um, but what I really loved most was the fact that they focused on the family unit, you know, not just post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury, the veteran, but the secondary PTS that affects the spouse and the family. Um, and I don't see a lot of organizations do that. I don't see a lot of organizations talk about that. I feel like there's a lot of good deal veteran charities where they take guys on trips and do those things. And I've, I've done those and I've supported those and, and those are great. And they have a place, um, in the support structure, but I really think what Tom and Jen are doing is special. What all secure is doing is special. 
Um, and so I was honored to be a part of it and support it and then, and then take part in it. You know, my wife and I went to one of the retreats that all secure put on and it was fantastic. Um, the, the counseling and level of professionalism that, that they provide and they're connected to is fantastic. Um, and you know, my wife and I still like, we utilize all secures, uh, therapist, um, you know, a couple times a month and, and continue to do so and will continue to do so not because we're having problems, but because we really like her and because it helps us be better to each other and for ourselves um, and get stronger. And, you know, your teammate, you rely on your teammates, your whole professional career, your spouse is your teammate for life. So of all the relationships that you should cultivate, take care of and work hard um, to, to make better, it should be the one with your spouse. And, and that's what All Secure works on. It's so different from hearing the beginning of your story to the end because it's 180 degrees in a different direction. You would agree, don't you think? Oh, yeah. 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 No, I, I, I honestly, I think I'm fortunate. Like, I see life differently, I think, than, than people that haven't been through all of those things. Um, I think life gets richer when, when you've almost lost it. I think it gets richer when you've almost taken it away from yourself. Um, and yeah, that's what I try to tell people. Like, again, the things that made you great before can make you great in whatever you choose to do next. And, and you should be trying to do that. And that's like, even in the consulting thing, like I, I've always said, DJ, like I just, in spite of all the bad things that have happened, I've always had really good timing. Um, I started this consulting company, I don't know, a month ago and in a week and a half, I had phone calls. Um, and in that very first week, a friend of mine introduced me to a, a Canadian company. Uh, and I'll, t I'll tell this one just because it's, it's hilarious how odd it is that things like this happen. But so he's a former chiropractor that um, started a company that's basically building neck support using foams um, and has a bunch of patents around protecting joints using foams. So think of like, you know, the knee pads and elbow pads now that where when you apply compression, the harder you hit them, the more they firm up. So it's the same thing utilized in, in basically a neck brace that can be incorporated in a shirt, can be incorporated in a vest, whatever. Um, so the friend that introduced us says, uh, I think you guys should talk. And I'm like, why? And, you know, he tells me that this guy's doing this neck brace and why that. And, and he tells the other guy, you know, just talk to Chris because he's basically your poster child. And that's about all he gives us. We get on the phone and the guy starts talking through this thing and he's, and he's like, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I was a former chiropractor. I did this, I did this, I did this. And he's like, yeah, we basically developed a, a neck brace using these foams. Um, and it's not just the neck. We're going to do it for shoulders. We're going to do it for elbows and knees and hips. And he's like, but we started with the neck because the number one, and he says this to me, he says the number one most common injury in the military and sports world is concussion. Number two is neck injury. And I started laughing and I said, I had total disc replacement in 2007 from wearing a helmet and nods. And I was diagnosed with TBI in 2010 because I got blown up a bunch and blew too many charges. And he was like, really? And I go, yeah, so I'm basically your poster child. <laughs> and so then he proceeds to show me the science. And I was so impressed by it and so excited by it that I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. I'm 
I literally did this because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do and, and I wanted to continue to help the community. And the very first thing that falls in my lap is this capsule technologies expert neck brace that literally is going to help reduce injury on the force that I came from. I mean, you're talking about 45% of my peers that worked with me have all had this same surgery. Like, I'm like, what are the odds that that lands in my lap, that I'm the guy that gets to bring that to the tactical space? Like, it's already going to blow. In the sports world, it's going to be in every sport you can imagine. But, you know, the guy, he didn't have any idea about how to take it to, to the defense space. And I'm like, I do. And I love this. And this is feel good stuff. Like, this is making a difference. Uh, and I can do it at a measured pace and not cause myself any stress and I could be excited about it. Um, but yeah, man, like, like things like that just happen. I mean, you put good out, you get good back. Um, and I really feel like I'm like, I'm fortunate. Like I, I just have good timing and things like that happen. And, uh, and, and I'm excited for this chapter. I'm excited to do the next thing and I'm excited to have more time to do some charitable work and keep helping people. Well, I was going to ask you what it feels like to be an old, wiser man, but I think you just answered that question. I don't think I need to ask it. <laughs> Finishing all this up, where can people find you if they want more? You haven't written a book, so where can people look into more of you? You sent me a ton of pictures today. Of course, they'll be up on your episode page, but where can people go to find a little a little more about you? Yeah, no, my, my Instagram is really the only thing that's public. Um, and it's, it's C Van Sant one, two, three. Uh, so it's, that's my Instagram handle C Van Sant one, two, three. Um, and I try to answer as many people as I can. Um, people ask me questions and stuff all the time. And, and I, I really do try and answer them when I can. Uh, I, I gotta be honest. I ebb and flow with that. Um, sometimes I get motivated and I post some things and share some things or say some things. Uh, and then other times I just get exhausted by it. So, um, but yeah, that's really it. Um, and then, yeah, my company is, is Vansant LLC is my consulting company and my emails, Chris at VansantVentures.com. Um, if anybody's looking for, I don't know, help assistance, I know a lot of people have been around the industry a long time. Um, if I can help solve your problem, let me know. Is there a book in the future? You know, I get asked that a lot. Um, I think there is a space for talking about this stuff um, in that form. Um, that first podcast that I did, uh, my oldest daughter called me. <coughs> and she said, you know, that's stuff that I didn't know. Like you never, I didn't know any of that. Uh, you never said any of that. You never let it on to any of that. Uh, and that had a pretty profound impact on me that, you know, stories matter. Um, not just to your family, but, you know, like my grandfather changed my life and didn't know it. And it was just by sharing his story. So yeah, I might get there. Uh, that'll, you know, that makes a lot of people happy. And then it makes a lot of people angry, I'm sure. Um, but I think if they, if they take the time to understand where it comes from and why you would do something like that, uh, then I think just like me with Tom and, and everybody else that's read Tom's book, um, it changes that perspective instantly. So we'll see. It is an amazing book too. I read it uh, before he came on the show. Uh, it is fantastic. And like you said, there are points and and you and I talked about this. Everybody can talk about the combat and stuff, but there's more That's that easy. makes up the person than just that. And, and I want to thank you so much for coming on. And as much as you've told about yourself and as open and, and 
I guess the word would be vulnerable as you've been um, to talk about it. I, I think there's great lessons out there for people. So I want to thank you again for coming on. Um, you've already said where you're going to be, uh, where people can find you on Instagram. Of course, that'll be on the episode page along with the pictures. Now you sent me a ton of pictures and guys, I'm telling you, these are going to be great on the episode page. Uh, you'll get to see a way different side of this guy here. Um, uh, in, in a lot of different environments because you sent from all over. You sent from the hunting and the outdoors to over in Iraq to I think there was some uh, Africa pictures in there and I think there was a couple of Afghanistan pictures in there. So it's all over from your career, even back from 82nd, 3rd, all those kind of things. So guys, make sure that you go check those out. Uh, I think that's going to be it for the show. So if you want more me, you know, you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are going to be in video form. Also, don't forget, check out DTDpodcast.net. That's what we were just talking about just now. When this episode comes out, you'll be able to see all of the pictures of Chris's career that he's sent over to me. You'll get to look at where you can find him on Instagram, where you can locate him on his email, and a lot more into the details of this show. Don't forget to go there. Check it out in audio and video form. It's a one-stop shop for the website for everything you need to know about the show. Also, don't forget, you need to go to our sponsors, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. They're an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends, and they're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause. They also give back to their community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Don't forget when you go to policecoffee.com, when you make your order, put in DJK10 at your checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. Guys, make sure that you go check this out on the website. Find this guy. Look at the, all the stuff that he's doing. That's going to be the show for this week. That's Chris. I'm DJ. We'll catch you guys on the next one. We'll see you later. Thank you.